The $100 bill is the highest denomination of physical currency in the United States. I remember as a kid when my father would occasionally pull out a $100 bill to pay for something, and I would pause and think, whoa, there it is. That is the big one. Well, as we stand in December of 2022, the United States is currently facing recessionary economic conditions. In these circumstances, people begin to spend less, so it's advantageous to hold as many of those $100 bills as possible. So how does the government combat the effects of decreased spending, i.e. you buying less gifts this year for Christmas? Well, they've got two options. Number one, they can raise taxes. And seeing as a campaign of, I'm going to raise your taxes, doesn't get too many politicians elected, that option is typically not taken. Another option, number two, is to print more of these $100 bills, which creates more debt for the government. Wait, how does issuing more $100 bills create debt for the government? Well, because the physical dollar you hold serves as a note to the United States Federal Reserve. The value of money is derived from the government that issues it. When the dollar was on the gold and silver standard, the understanding was you could take that $100 bill you own and redeem it for $100 worth of gold or silver. Well, finally, in 1971... We stopped the charade that there was enough gold or silver stored up to back up every dollar in circulation. And the United States currency became backed by all the goods and services in the economy. In other words, the U.S. dollar is backed by full faith and credit in the United States government. To put it even another way, your money has value because of the men that built this country. And business has only been booming in America. And we know this because the $100 bill is a worldwide cultural icon. It is the climax in movies when the briefcase of cash opens up. It is the focal point of music videos when the artist is talking about getting rich. It is quite literally coveted in countries across the globe for instant wealth. The sight of Mr. Benjamin Franklin's face can literally change somebody's life, ironically from the country that he helped build. Wait, Benjamin Franklin? How did he get on the $100 bill? Isn't that the guy who ran around silly with a lightning rod? Well, silly is an understatement, and yes, he practically harnessed electricity. We'll get there in a little while. But Franklin is one of the three figures to not be a United States president and appear on a dollar bill. Alexander Hamilton on the 10 and Harriet Tubman beginning uh, in 2020 on the $20 bill. So Ben Franklin must have done something substantial. If you look in the context of history at every other established country of the 18th century, the beginnings were rooted in empire but not the United States, as evidenced by one of its most influential founding fathers being a poor Protestant boy, that is, Benjamin Franklin. 
The theme I want you to carry throughout this podcast as we dive into the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin is this. Humble beginnings lead to success through curiosity. A lot of what I encourage through my newsletter platform, MWF at 8, and now through this Dire Notes podcast, is cultivating a lifelong learner mindset. I believe it's pivotal to never turn your mind off and pursue whatever you are passionate about. You will see quickly that Benjamin Franklin is the greatest example the world has ever seen of being curious and experimenting with that curiosity without care as to the outcome. Allow the introduction written by a third party in the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin to preview why studying his life is important and what you will gain from this. Quote, We Americans devour eagerly any piece of writing that purports to tell us the secret of success in life. Yet how often we are disappointed to find nothing but commonplace statements or receipts that we know by heart but never follow. Most of the life stories of our famous and successful men fail to inspire because they lack the human element that makes the record real and brings the story within our grasp. While we are searching far and near for some Aladdin's lamp to give coveted fortune, there is ready at our hand if we will only reach out and take it. In Franklin's autobiography is offered not so much a ready-made formula for success as the companionship of a real flesh-and-blood man of extraordinary mind and quality whose daily walk and conversation will help us to meet our own difficulties, much as does the example of a wise and strong friend. While we are fascinated by the story, we absorb the human experience through which a strong and helpful character is building. End quote. This is such a valuable resource to gain insight into one of the world's greatest minds. I hope you enjoy this podcast and my thoughts and reflections on it as much as I enjoyed diving into the life of Benjamin Franklin. My name is Davis Dyer, and this is the Dyer Notes Podcast. Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Off the bat, did not expect this much religious overtone in the book. Ben Franklin writes a lot about his moral uh, strive to perfection. And it's very interesting because he's writing the autobiography in his later years. So he's writing this in the 1770s and 1780s and yet he feels so much inclination to include information about his struggle with religion I would say but then also just his struggle for personal uh, moral achievement but that was kind of the inception of America that was the reason why people started coming here was for religious freedom 
And so if you kind of take that and that's your context, I think it makes sense. And so naturally, Christianity and religion has been infused in our American society ever since. And being as I am a Christian, it was easy and very interesting to interact with Franklin's thoughts. In our American history schooling, so your typical, um, you know, grade school through high school, uh, through some even into college, we typically stick to learning about the figures who were elected into office. And founding fathers like Benjamin Franklin are, they're just as important. And if you kind of take his life, he was born in 1706 and died in 1790. So pretty much lived the entire 18th century where a lot of, or the whole beginning of America happened. And, you know, if you study only presidents, that's only the 19th century on, essentially. So these founding fathers are crucial to study outside of the presidents. So it's kind of strange though. We're not going to really get into much of the revolutionary aspect of Benjamin Franklin's life. He never finished his autobiographies and his autobiographies were meant to be to his son, uh, which is what part one is. And then he realized uh, part two would be published to the masses. So he never gets a chance to finish his autobiographies and you would think he would start to include some of the revolutionary context in there. And so part one was written in the early 1770s and then part two was written in the late 1780s towards the end of his life. So thus we are left with this autobiography with the primary reflections of Benjamin Franklin as a young to, I would call it, middle adult life. And I think this is fantastic. So too often we get into studying someone's life and focus on the end result and the final outcome. And I think if we did have the revolutionary writings, it would be easy to just kind of skip to the end and say, hey, this is what was the most important or this is the most appealing topic where, you know, people get to where they are at the end of their life during the beginnings and the middle. So, you know, seeing Benjamin Franklin as a young printer trying to make his way in Philadelphia is... 10 times more important in my opinion to look into than you know him signing the the declaration of independence and then lastly just leave it to me for my first podcast and historical figure to um or autobiography to dive into is the one that is portrayed in my favorite tv show the office And if you know what episode I'm talking about, it took me a while to get this image of Ben Franklin out of my head. So without further ado, we will start getting into um, chapter by chapter of the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. So chapter one is titled 
ancestry and early youth in Boston. So he's born in Boston to a, a large Quaker family, and he begins his autobiography. Uh, and remember, he's addressing his or he's writing this to his son, and he begins it in a very fascinating way. Um, and by the way, whenever I am quoting Benjamin Franklin, I will try to say quote and say that it is Benjamin Franklin and then go into uh, my best Benjamin Franklin impersonation. So in this address to his son about kind of the overtone of what the autobiography will be, uh, he says, quote, Hereby too, I shall indulge the inclination so natural in old men to be talking of themselves and their own past actions, and I shall indulge it without being tiresome to others, who through respect to age might concede themselves obliged to give me a hearing, since this may be read and not as anyone pleases. And lastly, I may as well confess it, since my denial of it will be believed by nobody, perhaps I shall a good deal gratify my own vanity. Indeed, I scarce ever heard or saw the introductory words, without vanity I may say, etc., but some vain thing immediately followed. Most people dislike vanity in others, whatever share they have of it themselves, but I give it fair quarter whenever I meet with it, being persuaded that it is often productive of good to the possessor and to others that are within his sphere of action, and therefore in many cases. It would not be altogether absurd if a man were to thank God for his vanity among the other comforts of life. End quote. So what Franklin is addressing here is the concept of vanity. So what we would know vanity today would be an actor that writes, produces, and stars in a movie. Um, or somebody, uh, say a famous athlete, is the producer in their own documentary. This is what an autobiography is. And so there's a lot of room to embellish and to make yourself, prop yourself up. And it's pretty bold that Ben Franklin is even addressing this here. Again, for another time, he's addressing this to his son. Um, so he's kind of writing this in confidence. But it's still kind of cool to see him say, hey, I realize that a lot of this could be read out of context, but I'll try to be as truthful as possible. So then he begins to go into his family lineage and describes stories about how his family was very Protestant uh, and was under religious oppression that plagued Europe and he tells one story about how his great-great-grandfather had an English Bible and would often have to conceal it. So Franklin's father, whose name is Josiah, moved to New England in 1682. And he was married twice, and he had a total of 17 children. So Ben was born to the second wife and was the third youngest of 10 children. So there is a lot of kids involved with this one father, Josiah. 
And often I like to look into family dynamics and see, you know, what's the common theme that kind of pulls success um, out of it in the upbringing. And this one is just an anomaly. I mean, it's just kind of, you know, pick and choose. I mean, he's the third youngest of 10 children to uh, the second wife. So um, I'm sure that there's some some themes there, but he doesn't really get into that. And so his father, Josiah, actually intended to devote Benjamin to the service of the church. And he actually called him the tithe of, of the sons, um, meaning he was the 10th son. So I guess out of his 17 children, he was the 10th son. And that was a good enough rationale for Josiah to say, yep, going to make him and devote his life uh, to the church. And Franklin kind of proved that he was a good scholar early on. So this it kind of encouraged his father in that mission. Um, and kind of as an aside, it's honestly insane how anyone turned out to be anything in this time because parents in this day and age were always trying to create your life for you. And we don't realize how much freedom we have now. It's so insane, especially in family dynamics of, you know, my, I just, I'm going through a career change now and my parents have been so supportive and behind me in it where, you know, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, I don't even have, the mindset to think about what I want to do. It might have been just set up for me from, from the start. And so a good question here is I thought I'm with our increased freedom and opportunity that we have in 2022. Have we done more or less with it? Uh, do we, do we just use it for leisure and pleasure or do we kind of take advantage of it and, and make the most of our opportunity? Um, yeah, just a good question to think about. So then going on, Franklin had an infatuation for the sea as an early child. Um, He wanted to be a sailor, but he wasn't a fan of trade, which is very peculiar because especially in growing America, if you were going to be a sailor, you were going to be involved in trade. Uh, that's just kind of how, how it went. There wasn't many people sailing for fun and leisure. So along those lines, he kind of became a decent handyman early on, which is going to uh, play into his inventions later. Um, and this just kind of goes back to his curiosity. He was constantly curious as a child and as a um, as a teenager, and that really, really helped him later in life. So for all you uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers listening to this, don't lose that curiosity. Okay, and then getting into chapter two. So now he starts to begin his life as a printer. And ironically, this is spurred on by Franklin's father. Um, So maybe Benjamin did have a progressive father here who recommended that he get into the printing business similar to Benjamin's brother, James. Um, And this is due to Franklin showing 
very good reading and writing skills. And Benjamin Franklin even mentions that he tried his hand at poetry around this time, which is a big deal. So a lot of what poetry was, was how you would speak. Like spoken word was probably on the same level with poetry. Like you would go out into uh, the city square and read poetry or a lot of church sermons were in poetry. That's how you would preach early on. And so poetry at this time is still huge. So it's a big deal that he saw himself as not good at it and stuck to prose writing. And so as he's embarking on this career as a printer and writing for a paper, um, Franklin imitates the writing style of the London Spectator, actually, which is a satirical essay on social topics. So think of it like as the 18th century, The Onion, um, that's popular now for just writing uh, fake headlines that would seem real and fake stories. And Franklin described his time trying to imitate this writing style as, quote, About this time, I met with an odd volume of The Spectator. It was the third. I had never before seen any of them. I bought it, read it over and over, and was much delighted with it. I thought the writing excellent and wished, if possible, to imitate it. With this view, I took some of the papers and, making short hints of the sentiment in each sentence, laid them by a few days, and then without looking at the book, tried to complete the papers again by expressing each hinted sentiment at length, and as fully as it had been expressed before in any suitable words that should come to hand. Then I compared my spectator with the original, discovered some of the faults, and corrected them. But I found I wanted a stock of words or a readiness in recollecting and using them, which I thought I should have acquired before that time if I had gone on making verses. Since the continual occasion for words of the same import, but of different length to suit the measure or of different sound for the rhyme, would have laid me under a constant necessity of searching for variety, and also have tended to fix that variety in my mind and make me master of it. End quote. I think, especially me, I always think that people who are famous for creative work are just like superior to me and they're just blessed with a completely different mindset that allows them to unlock some really cool ideas. But here is Benjamin Franklin who has written some of the most famous pieces of work known to man. And he's telling us that he got his writing style by imitating a satirical essay from London. So he would take these essays and try to rewrite them. And whenever he would get tripped up or not know a word or a sentence, he would just then ad lib his own commentary in his own style. So he would be morphing his writing style with the style of the, um, of the London spectator. This is fascinating. Um, and it highlights an ongoing theme of what I learned, especially with Benjamin Franklin, just on imitation and using the resources that you have to the best of your ability 
because obviously this paper or essays were popular and people read them. So Franklin thought, well, why don't I just make these better? So don't think that the wheel has to be reinvented every time for a project to be successful. Sometimes it just takes existing pieces of work and figuring out ways to make them better. Next, he goes on to talk about how he formed his language skills in public speaking. And uh, just another note, as I kind of quote this autobiography, keep in mind it was written in the 18th century, which they were just so bad at punctuation. Um, I'm, I'm very happy that we got that cleaned up in the English language. So um, I'll try to relay them as best as possible. But I think it's also important to have the the original writing in this podcast and then have commentary on it just so um, it's not just me going uh, going rogue here. So back to Benjamin Franklin talking about how he formed his language skills in public speaking. Quote, I continued this method some few years, but gradually left it, retaining only the habit of expressing myself in terms of modest difference, never using, when I advanced anything that may possibly be disputed, the word certainly, undoubtedly, or any others that give the air of positiveness to an opinion, but rather say, I conceive or apprehend a thing to be so and so. It appears to me, or should think it so or so, for such and such reasons, or imagine it to be so, or it is so. If I am not mistaken, this habit, I believe, has been of great advantage to me when I have had occasion to inculcate my opinions and persuade men into measures that I have been from time to time engaged in promoting and as the chief ends of conversation are to inform or to be informed, please or to persuade. I wish well-meaning, sensible men would not lessen their powers of doing good by a positive, assuming manner that seldom fails to disgust, tends to create opposition and to defeat every one of these purposes for which speech was given to us, to wit, giving or receiving information or pleasure. End quote. So Franklin here is saying he avoided speaking in certainties. So instead of saying the words certainly or undoubtedly or giving, he says, air to positiveness of an opinion, he would rather use the words I conceive or it appears to me or uh, I imagine this to be so or for this and such reasons I... Uh, I think and he's saying I don't know why men would lessen their powers by um, assuming a potential wrong and this will come up a lot uh, later in his in his works and in his dealings this is ingrained in pretty much a lot of his ideals that he'll have later in life So he wanted to always let others play the game of taking sides and stances as he played the field of 
emotion and would appeal to both sides so as to never really make enemies. Which you could argue for and against that uh, as we, uh, if we study Alexander Hamilton soon, which uh, I've read that biography by Ron Chernow, you know, he's the opposite. But you have to have varying figures of different stances uh, to make successful products. And in this case, it would be a country. So uh, differences of opinion on this are are good. And so Franklin continues this chapter, uh, and at this time he is going to write these silence do good letters. So we mentioned beforehand that his father wanted him to go to work at his brother's printing press. So he and his brother James did not have a great relationship. His his brother James actually hated him. And seeing as Benjamin was a very talented writer, his brother wouldn't print any of his work um, out of animosity towards him. So Franklin would, at night, at midnight, he would drop off these letters and they were signed by the... Um, the pseudonym Silence Do Good. And James would pick them up the next morning and read them. And he thought that they were written by some older, wise, established person in town and loved them, not knowing that it was Benjamin Franklin who was writing them, his brother. And then he would he would publish them. He would print them. And this is Benjamin Franklin's first published and printed work were these silence do good letters. And we'll, um, at the end, after the autobiography, uh, I'm going to dive into a few of the other writings that Benjamin Franklin had. Um, so we'll, we'll save some of the details of those for, for the end. And so, uh, so kind of some context of what's go- going on in the country at this time. So the British Assembly is ruling over the colonies, obviously. And so uh, the British Assembly took kind of offense to what Silence Duguid, a.k.a. Benjamin Franklin, was writing at this time. And James's brother actually got a cease and desist for the paper that he was printing and to save it, he had to change the name of it. And he was willing to do that, to change it to Benjamin Franklin's name and put the risk on him. So ironically, because of Benjamin Franklin's writings, he got his own paper that um, he wouldn't publish much on here, but it's just kind of a funny way that that came to be and so many disputes arose about what should be printed obviously with his brother and benjamin in the new uh titled paper and these got so heated that benjamin franklin's brother just spread a bunch of bad rumors about him all over town um pretty much ensuring that franklin could never write or print in boston uh, because of his bad name, 
for actions that he uh, he never did. So uh, Benjamin Franklin makes arrangements to head to New York City to start fresh and to find a new uh, printing press to work at. All right, so chapter three, we jump back into the story of Benjamin Franklin getting off the boat in New York City. And the first quote that he has that he writes in this chapter is peculiar because if you remember, Benjamin Franklin was infatuated by the sea as a boy. And so his first quote is this quote, my inclination for the sea were by this time worn out or I might now gratify them. So it's a longer quote and he goes on to say, um, a lot more, but just that summarized portion there is he now like hates the sea and he goes on to be like, I was silly to even think I would ever be a sailor. And that's kind of what the young adult stage of life is, is you've have interest and you then go try them out and you're like, yeah, this isn't for me. And so it only takes Benjamin Franklin a couple sea voyages until he's like, you know what? I think I'll stick with this writing thing. I don't think uh, being a sailor is what I want to do. And, you know, if you relate it to our lives today, my childhood um, desires was to be a professional athlete. And then you see how hard it is and how, it is a path where there are superior athletes and there are not superior athletes. And you're like, okay, well, maybe this dream should um, get a little tamer. And flash forward to today, and I am now currently going through a career change. So it's okay to not know what you want to do, but what are you doing about the uncertainty I think is the most important. Are you actually trying new things or are you just thinking about trying new things? Be like, Oh, that would be fine. But then you just kind of sit around on it and don't really act. And so, um, I think that this is just a good reminder from Franklin of, um, you know, he loved the sea and the thought of being a sailor and then was like, you know what? Uh, don't really like this as much. So as he gets in New York City, and, you know, this is New York City in the 1700s, so uh, get the view of anything of what you think New York is today out of your mind. But as he gets into New York, um, but it's still the main uh, shipping port of America at this time. That hasn't changed. But he gets there and he doesn't have any any luck finding work as a printer and one printer that he was set up to meet tells him that he should go to Philadelphia and (laughs) Benjamin Franklin's just like okay sure and that that thought kind of make kind of cracks me up because This is just the day and age where it's like, imagine if you move to say Dallas for a new job and you get there and the employer's like, you know what, actually, this isn't really, there's not really stuff open. You should move to Denver 
And you're like, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, there's still like massive leaps of faith here. So he sets out for Philadelphia and he has this b- this bizarre journey going there where he gets shipwrecked in a storm, um, probably about 50-ish miles from Philadelphia. And so he goes into this town and finds um, finds somebody with a rowboat and is just like, hey, can I can I take your rowboat to Philadelphia? And they're like, we actually need to go. So yeah, let's just, (laughs) let's just go to Philadelphia. So, uh, so he joined them on their boat and, uh, he includes a story that on arrival, he tipped the people who helped wrote or the people whose boat that he was on in the rowboat. And, they were like so confused because they needed to go to Philadelphia too. So he was like, why would you tip me? And Franklin says here, quote, a man being sometimes more generous when he has but a little money than when he has plenty, perhaps through fear of being thought to have but little in quote. And again, a really good quote here of saying, a man being sometimes more generous when he has but a little money than when he has plenty. And I've had scenarios like that where I might not have as much, but I'm more like freely willing to give. And it's kind of weird where versus in times of abundance, whenever I'm not as willing to give. And Franklin goes on to say that he wanted to feel like he fit in financially in Philadelphia. He didn't want to seem like he was this just broke, nothing printer boy. So he kind of wanted to act the part. Um, it was, it was definitely from the heart too. We'll get into his kind of moral, uh, achievement that he strived for. So, I mean, Franklin wasn't just this immoral man, but kind of interesting that he was just like, I just wanted to seem like I wasn't just a nobody. So, and he does this no better than whenever he gets to Philadelphia and he writes like he was prancing through the streets, like he's just the biggest prized possession to enter the city. (laughs) So he's walking the streets of Philadelphia, just bopping around. And he writes that he uh, quickly sees the house of a family and the family's name is the Reeds. And he notices a girl in the Reed family, which is foreshadowing for later. So as Franklin's getting acquainted to Philadelphia, he meets a printer who he was set up to meet from New York, uh, who was recommended to him. And that ends up falling through. There's, there was no work for him at this printer so now Franklin has left Boston. He struck out with uh, a few printers in New York and he gets to Philadelphia and we're already 0 for 1 here. And he writes that the first printer that rejected him in Philadelphia says you should go and talk to this guy who is uh, beginning a press and this man is named Keimer. And you'll, you'll hear me reference Keimer throughout um, 
a lot of the rest of Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. So just know that he was a he owned a printing press in Philadelphia. And so Franklin goes to find this man named Keimer and he finds a less than stellar printing press with a very out of sorts man um, who is Keimer. But seeing as he has no other option, uh, he's like, all right, this is what we're going to take on here. So he begins work and um, through happenstance gets an arrangement to stay with the Reed family who he had noticed on his arrival to Philadelphia. So a man named Mr. Reed um, while working for Keimer's printing press. And it's easy to connect the dots looking backwards. It's a, um, that's a quote from Steve Jobs that I use a lot when you're looking back and re-examining history. But think about Benjamin Franklin at this moment. He is now working for a printer who is, we're going to find out that Keimer is not the best man. You can tell his his printing press was out of sorts. And I would be very distraught if I was Franklin in this time, but he never writes in his autobiography of a somber tone. And that's probably because he's writing it in the 50 years later, whenever he knows what is going to happen. But I can't help but think this is a very low moment for him. And a lot of this in our day and age too, or in um, this season of life of young adult, kind of ambitious, looking for work, looking to kind of find your, your place in society. We have a lot of these moments and you'll quickly find out in, in the coming chapters that Franklin doesn't get down by it, keeps his head down and works really hard. So getting into the next chapter, Franklin's work starts making it around town and the governor of the province of Delaware and Pennsylvania, which was one province at the time, was very encouraged by Franklin's early work and arranged to meet with him to inquire about Benjamin Franklin setting up full time in Philadelphia. So this goes back to kind of the arrangements that had to be made with work. This was supposed to be an apprenticeship and Franklin was then supposed to go back to Boston. So being as the governor knew that he needed to inquire to Franklin's father about Benjamin Franklin being in Philadelphia full time. Again, it's mind blowing. <laughs> like imagine if you moved with an opportunity of a new job to Phoenix and you get there and you start doing great accounting work and the governor of Arizona even is like, Hey, I'm going to write a note back to your, to your dad that says that you need to be here full time. It's, it's just such a crazy time, but it's only 250 years ago. It's not like this is some fairy tale land far, far off. Like this was the start of our country. 
so Benjamin Franklin, he's still a youth at this time, which is why too. So he's still 17, 18, but 17, 18 in this time is, you know, I think mid late twenties. Now they got started in their professions pretty early. And so the governor sends Benjamin Franklin home with a letter asking for him to relocate to Philadelphia to open his own press. So this is important, I think, because the governor wants Franklin kind of not to be involved with Keimer and to open up his own press, which is a huge deal. Like this is a massive deal. And I think this is the language that ultimately makes Benjamin Franklin's father decline it because he was too young and maybe things happen differently if the governor writes to Benjamin Franklin's father and just says, Hey, uh, want him to come down here and work at this press. But he says he wants him to open up his own press, but his father was extremely pleased by all the great things that people had to say about, uh, Benjamin and gave his approval for Benjamin to go back to Philly, but stay there and just be a, a printer. Franklin on his way back to Philadelphia. So he went back home for a second, got the graces to go back to Philly. And he tells this story about how on the boat ride to that stopped in New York city before going to Philadelphia, he tells the story of two, what he described as lovely women who tried to get Franklin to hang out with them. And this is where the uh, aloofness, for lack of a better term, comes into play of Franklin that is often portrayed. Like if you see Franklin portrayed in um, some sort of satire or some sort of play on history, he's oftentimes kind of kind of goofy, kind of silly. And that goes back to his right. Like he loved satire whenever he formed his writing style from a satirical essay from London. Uh, he loved comedy and he was no stranger to wanting to have fun and so these two women on this boat who were flirtatious with him but he he writes that he sensed a bad feeling among them and he was correct as soon as they got to New York City the captain had figured out that these two women um, had stolen from him and they were charged and sentenced to death. So it's, he dodged one there and it's a, it's just a story of who are you surrounding yourself with? And Franklin was wise enough to kind of divert that one. And it's, a good example of how easy it could have been for everything to be over for Franklin in an instant. And so while stopping in New York city, so he dodges this bullet with these two, um, women who, uh, were flirtatious with him. He's there and the governor of New York city actually hears about Benjamin Franklin and he hears that Benjamin Franklin has a book collection that he would carry with him. Again, this is, this is a big deal. Like books aren't 
just widely accessible and it was kind of a luxury and a high status class thing to have like books so the governor invites franklin to his house to like hang out with their book collection and do the cliche if you were thinking about hey i've the anchorman quote where will ferrell says i have many leather bound books like this is what i'm thinking of here franklin goes on to say this about the meeting with the governor quote this was the second governor who had done me the honor to take notice of me which to a poor boy like me was very pleasing end quote i think you make your own luck and this is just an example of benjamin franklin being active in the places where he goes and making a good name for himself and producing good work so I don't think that there's any secret as to why two governors took notice of Benjamin Franklin, but Franklin was shocked at the time. He's like, wait, why is this happening to me? And I, I love that quote. I think it's really, really cool. So while in New York city, he sees his childhood best friend who is now a kind of a town drunk and needs money and has a gambling problem. So Franklin gives him some money and his friend gambles it away. And it was this big, huge ordeal. And Franklin was pretty distraught about it. And so as Franklin leaves New York City and arrives in Philadelphia, he now kind of has this urgent feeling of making his money back that he had erroneously lent to his friend. So this was kind of his mindset getting back into Philadelphia and working was he was down financially. And he's got this interesting quote to end the chapter that I'll read here. Quote, I believe I have omitted mentioning that in my first voyage from Boston, being becalmed off Block Island, our people set about catching cod and hauled up a great many. Hitherto, I had stuck to my resolution of not eating animal food, and on this occasion I considered with my master Tryon the taking every fish as a kind of unprovoked murder, since none of them had or ever could do us any injury that might justify the slaughter. All this seemed very reasonable, but I had formerly been a great lover of fish, and when this came hot out of the frying pan, it smelt admirably well. I balanced some time between principle and inclination till I recollected that when the fish were open, I saw smaller fish taken out of their stomachs. Then thought I, if you eat one, I don't see why we mayn't eat you. So I dined upon cod very, very heartily and continued to eat with other people, returning only now and then occasionally to a vegetable diet. So convenient a thing it is to be a reasonable creature since it enables one to find or make a reason for everything one has a mind to do, end quote. So Franklin here is saying he was a vegetarian and gets to Philadelphia and starts eating fish. So it's just funny that he includes this quote to, again, he's writing to his son here, that he was like, ah, I just saw that fish ate other fish and was like, I think I'm overthinking this one on the whole uh, 
vegetarian diet thing. And interesting in this time to hear of a vegetarian diet, you would think that, yeah, fish would be huge in these seaport towns, um, but also, you know, hunting animals and eating meat would be a big deal. But this is just another foreshadowing uh, for later of Benjamin Franklin's journey to become a very morally righteous man by his standards. And I think this kind of food and diet was just another avenue to achieve that. Next, Franklin includes a chapter uh, titled Early Friends in Philadelphia and devotes a whole chapter to the friends of this stage of life that he has. And it's a very sentimental reflection so I won't dissect it much but it's cool about it just highlights in your young adult life your friends and all the great memories that you make is so special and not any different for Benjamin Franklin here but he also talks about a Miss Reed who he refers to um, and this is the daughter of the family that he is staying with while in Philadelphia. And will periodically, or he'll always refer to her as Miss Reed in his writings, which is interesting. But so in talking about his early friends, talked a lot about their mutual interest. And a lot of his friends shared an interest in reading and writing with him. So he writes very fondly on these memories. And... Yeah, just funny to hear him kind of mention the different things that stuck out. So this is a very unique chapter and I can kind of read it and reflecting on my friends and the different friends and stages of life that I've had in my young adult years and how special they are. So Franklin then gets into his next journey, chapter six. He um, is going to go to London for the first time. And this is foreshadowing a long, long responsibility of Franklin and his duties abroad with America to Britain and France. So this is his first trip to London and he gets the opportunity to be apprenticed by a printer in London. And he gets this opportunity through the governor of Pennsylvania and Delaware and who sends him with a letter of credit over there to live off of. So he mentions at the start of this chapter a goodbye to Miss Reed that was very affectionate and romantic. So love is in the air there, and we'll keep touching on that uh, coming up. But he arrives in London, and kind of getting back to the timeline... Uh, So he arrives in London on Christmas Eve, 1724. So things didn't start out well in London. And he says this through this quote. I waited upon the stationer who came first my way, delivering the letter as from Governor Keith. I don't know such a person, says he, but opening the letter, oh, This is from Riddleson. I have lately found him to be a complete rascal, and I have nothing to do with him, nor receive any letters from him. 
So pitting the letter into my hand, he turned on his heel and left me to serve some customer. I was surprised to find these were not the governor's letters, and after recollecting and comparing circumstances, I began to doubt his sincerity. I found my friend Denham and opened the whole affair to him. He let me into Keith's character, told me there was not the least probability that he had written any letters for me, that no one who knew him had the smallest dependence on him, and he laughed at the notion that the governor giving me a letter of credit, having, as he said, no credit to give. End quote. So Franklin gets to London and figures out that this governor of Pennsylvania and Delaware has zero standing in London. So the letter of credit that he wrote, Benjamin Franklin, is useless. And Franklin quickly realizes that he's he's in kind of the real business world here now in London, that you think about the governor of Pennsylvania and Delaware, this colony in America, being a complete kind of joke to these people in London as he gets over there. That's how small and insignificant going to America was. Was It was just kind of seen as, again, people were going there for religious freedom. And you know anybody who was any status was staying in London and not going to America. So I think that this is a really good scene to remember that. So now he's in London with no assurances because the governor of of, uh, Pennsylvania is actually an outcast of London. So it's, uh, he has, Franklin now has no status. And Franklin then now writes about uh, Governor Keith of Pennsylvania, quote, He wished to please everybody, and having nothing to give, he gave expectations, end quote. Love, love, love this quote. And think it highlights a lot of what happens even today in culture, is a lot of people who have nothing to give on to your life, want to give you expectations that maybe they can't fulfill in their own lives. And I always think it's burdensome whenever people kind of put high and lofty expectations on you when they're not willing to go to links to fulfill it themselves. You see that a lot in families, but you see it a lot too and and kind of work in different places. So, all right. So Franklin is now fully in London with no real assurances of anything. And he does what he always does whenever he gets to any town. He goes to every press and tries to find a job. So he finally finds one at a printing press in London. And he mentions he starts to just enjoy life. And he begins to partake in the lively social scene that London offered. So you can maybe think, uh, if you see in movies or any sort of media about how conditions were in major colony cities in the 1700s, they were disgusting, not much going on. There's no... 
richness of resources or any luxury items. It was pretty low class in New York City and Philadelphia. And so Benjamin Franklin's pretty shocked at what London offers in terms of nightlife and nice things. So he's quickly drawn to this luxury lifestyle. But he also doesn't have any money. And as he's reflecting and writing this autobiography, he writes that he immediately is regretful for not writing back to Miss Reed in Philadelphia and kind of getting caught up in his own fun while in London. But Benjamin Franklin also published great works, so it wasn't all play. And this created a lot of opportunity for him to meet prominent people in London. So again, he's constantly getting introduced to people in cities that he moves to based off of what he produces. So it's another example. I know in today's America or today's lifestyle, it's pretty easy to move around from city to city and people do it more often than not now. And things are going to happen for you if you move to a city and contribute to it and are not there for what the city can give to you. So that means a good example, I live in the city of Nashville and a lot of people move to Nashville thinking Nashville is going to give me a lot of stuff and that comes in the lively social scene. And But then they're shocked when nothing starts to happen for them. And that highlights this notion here of, well, what are you putting into the city? What are you contributing to it? Because what you put in is what you're going to get out of it. And I don't think it's any different in moving to a city. So Benjamin Franklin is always moving to a city and producing great work that people notice. And so he begins to make great connections. So next he writes about how he meets a girl in London, but that their relationship never really works out. And it ends up being the downfall of the current printing press that he's at. He ends up having to leave that press for another press because she was friends with people at that current press. So this is starting to get into like the original study abroad trip that Benjamin Franklin is just all over town. He's enjoying the nightlife, the social life. He's meeting a bunch of people, producing great work. And now he's in a relationship with this girl who I guess is pretty good friends with the guys at the printing press that he's working at and ends up not working out. Guys are like, all right, you're out of here, bud. And so now he's, he needs another job and it's just still goofing around in London. So he gets a job at a, what he describes a greater printing house. Um, again, this is going back to the vanity quote that he mentions at the start of his autobiography. Who knows if it was a greater printing house, but he talks a lot about how the men at this new printing press drank a ton of beer and were just drunk the whole time, which is 
crazy to think about that a printing press you could just drink the entire day and print the news or print whatever came through and write too i'm sure that they were writing pieces and he mentions that he only drank water so the people at this new printing press actually called him quote the water american and a good uh thought i think to take from this is don't be afraid to go against the tide being drunk at a printing press all day is like literal insanity and it's funny to think about that like nobody would ever be at the new york times today just uh like hey our whole staff is just you know inebriated at noon but it it was normal at this time and that was probably seen as like yeah this is our business practice but franklin had the inclination to work hard and not participate in these malfeasances of the printing press and it separated him and he produced uh some of some great writings during this time and so franklin actually has a crazy ending to his time in london so he wanted to be in a different part of town he wanted to like live in a different part of town closer to downtown so he finds this nun who had an open space in her attic and he talks about kind of a fond relationship that he developed with her because he moves into her attic and just kind of appreciates her her meekness and lifestyle but then through this nun he also makes friends with a wealthy man and Franklin teaches this man how to swim. And also he just thought Benjamin Franklin was very impressive in his works. And so the man actually offers Benjamin Franklin to travel Europe with him and do business. And Franklin was very, very interested. And as he was considering it, the man that, Franklin had journeyed to London with from America um, had mentioned that he was wanting to go back to America. So this is hitting around the year mark that they had been there. And Franklin now has this decision. He's like, all right, do I want to travel Europe and do business with this man or do I want to go back to America? And Franklin agreed to go back to America. And additionally, one last Hail Mary before getting on the boat and going back, it word spreads around London that Benjamin Franklin is this talented swimmer. And Benjamin Franklin writes that people were coming to him and asking if he could teach swimming lessons. And he says that he got offered a lot of money to stay and teach swimming in London. But Franklin, he contemplated it, but ultimately decided again, I'm going to go back to America. And this is kind of crazy because, again, remember what we talked about at the beginning of this chapter. America is absolutely the riskier play here. 
there is a lot of assurances in London at this time that America cannot offer. And so he's willingly going to leave. Like he was starting to build a really, really good life and connections in London based off of his writing and to kind of leave that and say, no, I'm going to bet on myself still and go back to America is pretty bold. And he has this quote at the end of the chapter. So this is Franklin speaking quote. Thus, I spent about 18 months in London. Most part of the time I worked hard at my business and spent but little upon myself except in seeing plays and in books. My friend Ralph had kept me poor. He owed me about 27 pounds, which I was now never likely to receive. A great sum out of my small earnings. I loved him, notwithstanding, for he had many amenable qualities. I had by no means improved my fortune, but I had picked up some very ingenious acquaintance, whose conversation was of great advantage to me, and had read considerably. End quote. So he talks about how he didn't gain any wealth while in London, but he gained so much experience, so much good work he produced, and a lot of relationships that he was appreciative to develop. And I think that that's one thing that um, you, you can't really replace experience with money sometimes. I know that I was, I worked a job in public accounting that many people argued the pay was not up to par, which, yeah, I mean, I could agree with, but the experience that I gained from that job was so invaluable. And I could kind of see this in Franklin's writing here. And he was very happy with the end result of his time in London. Okay, so chapter seven begins back in Philadelphia. And Franklin sells back to America in July of 1726. And you think about that date, and we're still 50 years from having not even an established country, but the Declaration of Independence. So there's still a lot to be, or still a lot to happen in America in the next 50 years. And Franklin is still kind of beginning his his professional career. So the first thing he checks in on is none other than Miss Reed. So, I mean, the man hadn't been off the boat long enough to open up his compass and he's like, where is she? <laughs> it's, um, it's just a tale as old as time of men and love. And so Franklin actually comes out with or starts this chapter by bashing the guy that Miss Reed was with. So he finds her, realizes she had been involved with another man, and he writes, quote, He was a worthless fellow, though an excellent workman. End quote. This is who Benjamin Franklin is. Like he can't even successfully diss the other guy that the love of his life is with without being like, well, I mean, yeah, he was worthless, but guy was a great workman. 
so don't you hate it though whenever you have to give the other uh, person props who a past relationship is with anyway neither here nor there um so he is with this Mr. Denham who was the man that he sailed to London with and then sailed the guy who convinced him to sail back to America and they Mr. Denham has a store on Water Street which is still a street on Philadelphia today and remember how Franklin was called the Water American by those printers and the press that he worked in in London I just I kind of love these little coincidences and he doesn't point it out in his book but it's just funny how he's coming back to Philadelphia and starting his career on Water Street he's the Water American um it's like the other day I met a guy named Davis and he was like blown away it was like one of the strangest occurrences of his life like I I know a handful of Davises at this point through 26 years of living. This guy was in his thirties and it was like, I had told him that we've been to space. It was, it was crazy, but, um, I don't know. Coincidences big or small can have an impact on people. And I, I think that, um, this small one in Franklin's life is funny to me. And so as he's working at this shop, he has he comes down with some illnesses and franklin says quote we lodged and boarded together he counseled me as a father speaking of mr denham and having a sincere regard for me i respected and loved him and we might have gone on together very happy but in the beginning of february 1726-27 when i had just passed my 21st year we both were taken ill, in quotes. So sickness in this era is so common and very debilitating. Pretty much anybody you study is going to have a bout with some sort of ailment, and they are going to write that this is probably it for them. Franklin was no different here. He had this crippling illness that he was writing and was like, I don't think I'm going to recover. And you think about how many people do die of mass disease in this time. I mean, one of the leading, actually definitely the leading cause of death was illness. And, you know, it makes me think one time I had a very debilitating case of mono and it was it was honestly just horrible but in the age of modern medicine i was never really worried i wasn't like writing my death sentence and so i think covid recently was just so jarring to kind of get into that the world got into that mindset of disease wiping out people and you know, you would think today no mass disease should be able to take a lot of people out. But the fact is, is that disease is about as fundamental to human existence as anything. And I don't think COVID will be the last time. I think it will only be a cycle in mankind. So Franklin goes on to say, quote, 
I suffered a good deal, gave up the point in my own mind and was rather disappointed when I found myself recovering, regretting in some degree that I must now some time other have all the disagreeable work to do over again, end quote. So he's writing 50 years later, thinking about how bad this sickness was. And he's saying that he gave up in his mind. He was like, yep, this is it. And when he found himself recovering, he was like distraught at how much work he had to do. So it always takes something drastic for you to realize what's kind of at hand and what's in front of you and all the great things that you have, which is sad. But Franklin is going to rebound here and um, get past this, this little roadblock. So the Mr. Mr. Dunham that he was staying with uh, and working for in his shop, he dies from this sickness and so the store was taken into care of the executors of his will. So Franklin was out of work. So he reaches back out to Keimer, the printer that he was working for before leaving for England. And Keimer actually offers Franklin to manage uh, the printing press. Keimer kind of knows that he's a he's not really amounting to much and driving the business into the ground and so he's willing to give kind of everything over to uh to franklin here and so keimer paid him well um but he was still kind of suspicious of franklin that he would take over the business fully um so sorry if I didn't make this clear. He, Keimer wants Franklin to manage it, but Keimer would still own the the press. And so Keimer was still just a loose cannon going around Philadelphia and was talking bad about Franklin. And so Franklin was like, all right, I'm not going to do this. I'm out of here. You're insane. And so Franklin got another coworker at the press who knew that this wasn't going to work. Um, they together made plans to, to launch their own uh, press to rival um, Keimer and take his business. Meanwhile, Franklin and this other coworker are plotting to launch their own press. They stay at Keimer's press and still work there. And Keimer has this, this inclination to try to start printing paper money in New Jersey. So he and Franklin head up there to see what it would look like to start printing money. And they end up in the town of Burlington where Benjamin Franklin ends up making a lot of friends and connections all over the town. And people in the town wanted to mingle with Franklin over Keimer. And Franklin makes friends with like town leaders and one man says of Franklin quote, I foresee that you will soon work this man out of his business and make a fortune in it at Philadelphia in quote. 
so Frank Franklin goes to this town, Burlington. They're trying to figure out, hey, should we start printing paper money? And immediately, everybody that, that they come into contact with is like, um, Benjamin Franklin is way more impressive than Keimer. And he gets kind of this spoken quote over him of, like, I see you doing great things in Philadelphia. And a big takeaway from this is just be the person that people want to be around. This whole time, Franklin is always describing Keimer as this downtrodden, negative, oddball. And it's just people want to be with others that are positive and upbeat and life-giving. And it's not easy, but it is such a big payoff. And so I also firmly believe in people speaking over your life. I don't take it lightly ever when somebody maybe projects something on to me or says something positive. It's a pretty crazy thing. And when people believe in you and give you confidence, it's so powerful. There's been many instances, but a few that kind of stick out in my life where somebody has said something to me and it's actually happened. And it's, it's just a crazy thing to watch become true. Now, Franklin has a section here that he kind of starts to dive into religion. And religion was so heavy in a lot of Benjamin Franklin's writings. And we're going to touch on religion and his ideas of it um, a decent amount going forward. And so he kicks off kind of his thoughts with this quote. Before I entered upon my public appearance in business, it may be well to let you know the then state of my mind with regard to my principles and morals, that you may see how far those influence the future events in my life, end quote. So he's telling his his son here, uh, before I kind of keep going in what I was doing professionally, I want to let you into where I was morally. And this is going to be an ongoing theme throughout the rest of the chapters. So Benjamin Franklin goes on to say that he was raised, uh, quote, religious, but he dissents that lifestyle. And at age 15, as he started to to become well-read, he says that he began to doubt the revelation. Um, He goes on to identify as a deist based on some books that he read and so deism is the religion of nature Um, and this definition is by the natural humanities center so it was a form of rational theology that emerged among free-thinking europeans in the 17th and 18th centuries deist insisted that religious truth should be subject to the authority of human reason rather than divine revelation. So he goes on to say that he struggled with God's infinite wisdom, goodness, and power, but he makes many, many mentions in the rest of his writing to um, God and his infinite wisdom, goodness, and power. 
So it's a little contradictive, and it's it's kind of where he starts to make his own virtues here. So he goes on to say, quote, Truth, sincerity, and integrity are of the utmost importance to the felicity of life, and I form written revolutions to practice while I lived. End quote. So he's going to constantly take virtues that he likes and that he's good at and apply them and say that they're the most superior to his moral achievement. And again, kind of going back to my views on this, um, my sign off for this podcast is going to always be may the great shepherd guide your ways. Um, Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so may the great shepherd guide your ways is going to be my sign off. And so deism, going back to Benjamin Franklin, deism just kind of overlooks the the revelation and the uh divine nature of Jesus coming down to earth and it's kind of hard to really reconcile a lot of his writings here being as I'm of a dissenting viewpoint but I'll do the best I can so first and foremost if you're not a Christian or as Benjamin Franklin would say here religious it's still important to understand Christianity's impact on the fabric of America and this time period. It was pretty much at the forefront of everything. So the first settlers came to North America seeking um, Protestant freedom from the Church of England. And our forefathers saw what happened when you kind of combined church and state in England, and they worked that into the First Amendment of the Constitution with freedom of religion. So it is your right in America to believe whatever you want. And there's there becomes a problem here with Benjamin Franklin Franklin's deism thinking. And I don't want to make this a lecture, but I feel like we have to go here. By relying on your own moral virtues, so on your human reason rather than divine revelation, which is what the definition of deism is, what is left when you let yourself down? So in other words... I could go back in the previous seven chapters and find examples where Benjamin Franklin didn't act out of truth, sincerity, or integrity, which is what he claimed to be of the utmost importance. And so what's the next act of recourse? Well, you have to change your own rules to fit the new standard. So whenever you are superior and you fall short of your superiorness, you constantly are, uh, to use the anecdote, you're constantly moving the goalpost. So it's it's hard to read a lot of Benjamin Franklin's writings on moral superiority and not think of how much agony that he must have gone through with this because 
nobody's even remotely capable of coming close to the standard that he's going to try to uh, fit. Not saying it's not worth the the trial and effort, but it's just a lot. So again, when we live by our own rules, we constantly live a life of failure with no grace. So meaning we are the ones who have to be our own God if you are going to live in this deist mindset. I don't know about you, but I am a terrible God. Ask any of my friends and family and they would say, great God, probably not going to worship him to save me. So I'm not trying to go in on Franklin here because I've definitely gone through the mindset that my human reasoning can be superior. Um, And I would be lying if I said I still do or I still don't at times. I mean, I still can kind of get into that mindset, but then it always fails. And I'm left reminded that I need a savior who came down and lived the ultimate, um, the perfect life um, and displayed grace and truth that is available. And Benjamin Franklin concludes the part of him discussing his faith, his faith by saying, quote, I had therefore a tolerable character to begin the world with. I valued it properly and determined to preserve it, end quote. So he's now wanting to say, hey, before I started any sort of professional endeavors, um, and he'll get into public life too, that he wanted to make sure that he had the most moral character possible. And he's going to work at this incessantly. So moving on, um, he moves... um, so he, he's in Philly where he continues to be a printer. And now we're going to get into one of Benjamin Franklin's most interesting concepts that I, I love. And he's going to have a lot of them coming up, this one in particular. So Benjamin Franklin took all of his ingenious friends, um, and that was his quote. He called them his ingenious friends and made a club called Junto, uh, which is Spanish for a club of political intrigue. So the rules of Junto, spelled J-U-N-T-O, Junto, the rules were as follows. So the club would meet every Friday evening. Every member, in turn, would produce one or more queries on morals, politics, or natural philosophy to be discussed in the group. Once every three months, every member had to produce an essay to be read aloud to the group on any subject. And Franklin said, quote, Our debates were to be under the direction of a president and to be conducted in the sincere spirit of inquiry after truth, without fondness for dispute, or desire of victory, and to prevent warmth, all expressions of positiveness and opinions or direct contradiction were after some time made contraband and prohibited under small pecuniary penalties, end quote. And Franklin says that this club lasted for 40 years. So they had these simple rules where um, debate was supposed to be in kind of goodness of heart, um, keeping opinions and contradictions uh, mild, kind of not 
having a practice of argumentative behavior and they did this for 40 years. And I find this absolutely fascinating. Oftentimes today, our discussion about topics is all online and just even practicing a junto group would be so great for for everybody's opinions and whatnot because often like people just want to air out their thoughts and online happens to be the most accessible but it also happens to broadcast it to the biggest audience i know a lot of times whenever i do this i'm like well i kind of just wanted to vent out some thoughts and it just so happened that it went out to everybody who wants to access it so this is kind of unfortunate but i think getting like keeping the practice of these like small clubs where you can just meet people face to face and talk about topics and issues is really cool so what would this look like today a junto group just brainstorming what if a group could rent a small commercial office space and just turn it into a communal space and you get the members to pay rent and you just do kind of the same thing you discuss topics use it as a place to uh, meet and hang out I think it would be a great idea and so we'll we'll revisit Junto a few other times as he'll mention it in his autobiographies but moving on um, so people in Phil in Philadelphia at this time thought Benjamin Franklin's press would fail because there were already two other presses and a man named Dr. Baird dissented this opinion and said the following quote for the industry of that franklin is superior to anything i ever saw of its kind i see him still at work when i go home from club and he is at work again before his neighbors are out of bed end quote i said in the pilot podcast that i want to increase your awareness of how things don't just happen and this is kind of example a of what i'm always talking about this is a complete independent third party having a quote on Franklin and he's pretty much saying it doesn't matter if there's competition. This guy just wants it more. And that's a lot of what success looks like for um, any famous person that you study. So Franklin he messes up in telling a man that he was going to start a paper at the new press that he would launch. And so this man that he told went behind his back and told Keimer, who almost immediately launched a paper at the press that Franklin is still the manager at. And Franklin at this time in brainstorming an idea for his paper he wrote entertainment pieces for other papers in philadelphia under the pseudonym busybody so this is now franklin's got three different pseudonyms that he's been under so silence do good and then he was the water american that was just more of a nickname in london and then now he's writing under the name Busybody. So he's a man of many names here. And it's interesting that he wrote entertainment. 
and it goes back to him trying to imitate the London spectator, but it reveals his more creative side and he's going to get into politics, but I think that this is such a vital skill to have in any sort of line of work is just an ability to be creative, have lightheartedness, entertain people is a big deal. And Franklin, so Benjamin Franklin eventually got his paper up and running. Um, and he had quite a different appearance than like his paper had a different appearance than a bunch of the other papers and it was just better printed. So he reprinted the main paper in town, but would just change it. (laughs) That's it. And he was voted printer of the year because his was just better. Um, Not saying that there's many options to choose from, but again, this is another imitation piece. So he takes an existing product and makes it better. Market is insanely difficult to find. There's always room for a better product in an existing market. That's not to say that then somebody else is going to come along and make a better product, but imitation is everywhere. And papers and publications and media still do this today. It's all about who can have the best headline to make you get clicks. It's all about presentation of content. And nothing's changed since the 1700s. So back to the structure of the printing house. He started it with a guy named Meredith that had worked with him at Keimer's. And the guy basically did nothing. And Franklin was pretty distraught. And these this it, it wasn't really that profitable at the start. Pretty much just had Franklin's paper. And so creditors came for half of the money loaned to start Benjamin Franklin's printing house. And obviously neither one of them had the money. And two guys in Benjamin Franklin's Junto group offered to settle the debt for him. One thing led to another, and this ended up not happening, but oh my goodness, is this such an awesome story that Benjamin Franklin decides to start this group of kind of his his favorite friends and intellectually curious friends and people that are successful, and they come around to help him um, not make his printing press go under. So I just wrote, a big note of in seasons where you're surrounded by the best people, good things happen. So always surround yourself with people that are interested in you and want what's best for you and don't want anything in return. Those are some of the best friendships I have where it's not about anything else other than, Hey, how can I help you? And that's what Franklin has here in the Junto group. So chapter eight begins with its title, Business Success and First Public Service. So again, Franklin was prefacing his mindset of his moralities and religion before now getting into 
a little bit of business success, I guess, to his son, because this is the last part of part one of the autobiography. And he begins on the issue of currency in the colonies and the people's want for more money in circulation. So obviously the chief currency was the British pound and wealthy people who had the British pound were very opposed to printing money in the colonies as it would begin to deflate the value of their currency of the British pound if a currency in the new colonies were to take off. And so this has always been the never-ending discussion of finance and wealth. Today, the same thing, as we touched on in the opener, happens if you print more money, your dollar becomes less valuable. And the House legislature grants Franklin permission to print money at his press based off his anonymous essay uh, titled The Nature and Necessity of a Paper Currency. So this is included as one of the other writings in the autobiography that I read that we uh, will touch on a few points at the end. But going and reading that, you kind of have to go back to what is the general concept of money. And again, I know we touched on this in the intro, but it's a promise to pay its face value in whatever a government offers. So uh, America was on the gold standard and then the silver standard for a long time. And before the success of the colonies in the resolution and the revolution, the money in the U.S. was not worth much because there was no real government to honor it. So, the value of a currency is based off of the government that issues it. So, it would take thousands of this newly printed money just to buy a pair of boots in this day. Um. And Franklin was conscious of his appearance all over town. So he didn't want to be the guy that was kind of going around printing money and making people that were wealthy mad, but he just saw it as such a necessity. And again, Benjamin Franklin was just a hard worker. So he was, he wanted to see this through, but the reason why he kind of, got into this and was able to get some steam behind this was that he always, he never wanted to give into scandal and make his name and his reputation bad around town, which was just a huge deal. It still is, but we've, um, actually, I don't know. We've kind of desensitized having a good reputation. Um, it's kind of honestly more cool to like be in the news for something bad. And you think about how it just drives clicks and it, keeps your name in the news and I still think it's so valuable and important to have a clean reputation. Um, you know, where online culture sees it as, as valiant to an extent and people who perform crimes just seem to like, Hey, let's just give them a documentary and make a documentary and make this all Hollywood. Um, it was still a big deal that in this time period and today, but that Benjamin Franklin had a clean reputation to go in front of public life and um, senators and House of Representatives to present his case on topics. So 
back to his social life, Franklin tried to get, or he was trying to be courted by a woman whose family rented the shop next to his printing press. And overall, he wasn't interested, but this reignited a lot of writings about the Miss Reed that he loved. But he was still a poor printer at this time, so it was kind of tough to court Miss Reed because she was of high status. He kind of glosses over that, though, and just goes on to say that they married in 1730. So he finally gets his love, Miss Reed. And he skips forward a little bit more and says, um, he goes back to Junto and Franklin and his friends at Junto decided to pull their book collections together so members could grab any books as they wished that were referenced in the meeting. So basically, Franklin and his friends in Junto were saying, uh, we're, we're talking about the books that they were reading and you know, Franklin was like, hey, I would like to read that. Then they would bring it and exchange books probably. And Franklin just said, hey, why don't we just leave our books here and we check them out as we please. So not too shockingly, this turned in, this little subscription service of Junto turned into the first public library and is still the basis of the Philadelphia Public Library today. It was the first of its kind. And I don't think it's by happenstance that good ideas start flowing whenever you're around passionate, curious, creative people. Again, in seasons of life where you're surrounded by the best people, good things happen. Um, A lot of life is who are you surrounded by. And this is the last idea that he mentions in part one. And it was written in 1771 to his son. So coming up next, we got part two. All right, so welcome to part two. And this is written in now 1784. So a few years before Benjamin Franklin died. And this is written, as I mentioned in the intro, as more so with the idea that this would be published. So part two won't be as long, I think, but... There's still a lot of good stuff in here. So he opens up part two with this quote. Thus far was written with the intention expressed in the beginning and therefore contains several little family anecdotes of no importance to others. End quote. So again, now he's touching on this like, all right, I'm going to stop with the family stuff and written with the mindset that this would be read by uh, the general public and not just his son. But it's funny that he kind of belittled his early life of to be of no importance at the start of this. So he goes on after that quote to kind of say that, you know, a lot of what he wrote was of no importance. I think he's saying that to the general public and not to his son. Um, and also, I think it's really important. I think it's so fascinating to hear about how famous, successful people are brought up in their adolescent years because I think it's so critical. But Benjamin Franklin does not see the same. So he begins by going back to the establishment of the Philadelphia Public Library that he um, geniusly invented. 
and it was advantageous to begin to build knowledge for the society is what he said and he says this quote the objections and reluctances i met with in soliciting the subscriptions made me soon feel the impropriety of presenting oneself as the proposer of any useful project that might be supposed to raise one's reputation in the smallest degree above that of one's neighbor when one has need of their assistance to accomplish that project i therefore put myself as much as i could out of sight and stated it was a scheme of a number of friends reading was the only amusement i allowed myself i spent no times in taverns games or frolics of any kind End quote. So Franklin here is saying that this was only going to raise the reputation of his group and of his friends by reading and um, taking in valuable knowledge and, you know, time spent in taverns and playing games and frolicking around wasn't great. And I don't think that this is necessarily 100% true. There's a lot of scenarios where you should have fun and not spend a time reading some leather-bound book. But I do think we've lost too much of this to where it has been hurtful to people today of the Enlightenment. I, I do think it is too much on the Epicurean eat, drink, and be merry lifestyle. So Franklin is trying to say here that this library system benefited Benjamin Franklin as much as anyone else. And that's such the sweet spot in market development. I know that he ended up, a lot of his works he's not going to profit off of, but he wanted this for the greater public good. But a lot of Franklin's inventions, he was the ultimate beneficiary of them as much as anyone else. So he was always creating concepts and taking ideas to market that benefited him too, which is crucial. A lot of times people are like, oh, let me just find something that everybody would love. And it's like, well, are you going to use it? And they're like, well, I don't know. Maybe not. Probably not. It's like, okay, I don't know if it's going to be that successful in the market if you're not going to use it either. So the next chapter, chapter nine, is called Plan for Attaining Moral Perfection. So he begins it with this quote. It was about this time the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing fault at any time. I would conquer all that might natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. As I knew, or thought I knew, was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. But I soon found I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined, end quote. So this goes immediately back to the uh, deist and deism conversation that we were having earlier of whenever you think your human nature is superior to uh, divine revelation. And trying to outsmart human nature is literally impossible. If you've lived longer than a week, you know this. But it's crazy that Benjamin Franklin, writing this 50 years later, is iterating still how obsessed he was with moral perfection. 
he never threw in the towel on this. You know, maybe 50 years later he was writing, he's like, ah, well, I don't know. I was just kind of kind of an idiot and I'll leave this part out. No, this was, this is huge. This is what he tried to do day in, day out his whole life. And so he outlines a lot in this quest for moral perfection. I'm going to highlight a few things that stood out to me, but he creates this list of 13 virtues and they are in this order one through 13. Number one, temperance. Number two, silence. Three, order. Number four, resolution. Number five, frugality. Number six, industry. Seven, sincerity. Eight, justice. Number nine, moderation. Number 10, cleanliness. Number 11, tranquility. 12, chastity. And then number 12, humility. So of these 13 virtues, he is literally obsessed with trying to be as great of a human as possible. The problem is, is that he's always coming up short, as he said in his quote at the beginning, that he didn't realize he was setting out on a task that was very, very difficult. And I think it's so ironic. Well, it's not ironic. It's just um, I, my belief here that the last virtue, number 13, comes and it's humility. And he's got a little description under each of the 13. And number 13, the description is imitate Jesus and Socrates. I had the question in thinking about that and was like, why do we pick and choose what we want from Jesus and not the full story? And I think this is so prevalent today. And everybody always thinks Jesus is such a great moral character. And like, yeah, no, he was he was great. And he had these great ideas. But, you know, I'm not going to follow him because I've got, you know, my own human judgment and things that I believe that are superior. And this is what Franklin's doing. He's like, yeah, no, let me just pick and choose a couple of things. Like last virtue here, number 13, humility. Um, you know, the person that got it right and was perfect for our, um, for our graces and to give us grace because we can't do this. We cannot be perfect. And so I just, I think that that's kind of sums it up. And so moving on, he, he made a chart of these 13 virtues. And so if you think about a chart, uh, the columns were the 13 virtues, and then there were seven rows for seven days of the week. So he would focus on one virtue a week and try to get a clean slate. So if he had an error, let's say he was trying to focus on frugality, he would put an X beside the day of the week where he wasn't frugal and made a lavish expenditure if that happened. And so he says that temperance was first and his big things to focus on was not overeating or over drinking. So as soon as he would master that one, he would then go on to the next virtue. And I actually think that this principle is really, really good. Again, nothing of what Benjamin Franklin is doing here is, is bad. It's all, it's all very good, but it's just, I have to kind of examine the 
uh, religion aspect of it. But I think this practice of starting small and trying to master something small and then moving up and gradually putting more on yourself is what I live by. So a couple other notes here. Benjamin Franklin says that he would start uh, the weeks with a prayer to God to accomplish his virtues. And he said, quote, I was surprised to find myself more fuller of faults than I imagined, end quote. He then says that he couldn't master the order virtue because Franklin was terribly disorganized. And again, he was oftentimes described as aloof. So he couldn't stay organized to save his life. And a few other notes. He um, said of humility in the last virtue, he claims to add, quote, I cannot boast of much success in acquiring the reality of this virtue, but I had a great deal with regard to the appearance of it, end quote. Um, again, this goes back to him avoiding certainties too, his his uh, theory of never talk in absolutes, but only in, in um, abstract thinking. So Franklin would never directly contradict someone abruptly, but would instead acknowledge circumstances where that might be the case and then expand on it. And this is where a lot of the virtues that he describes, he's like, I didn't have much success, but I had a great deal with regard to the appearance of it. So again, he's, he's always moving his own standard, but he's always moving the goalpost to achieve what he wants to out of these instead of just saying, Hey, I'm not perfect. I'm never going to do this. Let me allow myself grace. And yes, still, still strive for these. And try to be the best person that I can possibly be. But know that there is Jesus who accomplished this for me. And I can rest and be free in that. So Franklin goes on to talk about one thing that he tried to get rid of in his life. And he says that there's not one natural passion that every man should get rid of other than pride. So he says, quote, disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive and will every now and then peep out and show itself. You will see it perhaps often in this history, for even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. End quote. Might be my favorite quote in this whole biography. And pride is dangerous, and I'm working to get rid of it right now, uh, every day too. Uh, maybe that's my one virtue here uh, that I need to put out a schedule for and look for. Um, again, like I'm saying, what Benjamin Franklin doing here is not bad. It's just uh, some of it's ironic. But pride, I think, is oftentimes very dangerous in my life and I love this quote about it that he says the irony of pride um, even if I could concede that I've completely overcome it I should probably be proud of my humility so pride is something to always be cautious of chapter 10 introduces 
Poor Richard to the world. So the title is Poor Richard's Almanac and Other Activities. So in 1732, Benjamin Franklin publishes his first almanac under the name of Richard Saunders. So again, another alias here for Franklin. Um, I think that's his fourth one. And these almanacs continued for about 25 years. And this was the most profitable uh, yeah, writing that Franklin had. And he just wanted to make it entertaining and useful. Again, going back to a lot of his writing was wanted, he wanted it to be an entertainment for people. So it was pretty much these almanacs were a consolidation of all the interesting things that he was reading and talking about with friends. And since he had access to his own press and his own, he had launched his own paper, he was like, why not publish this? And it's kind of like what I'm doing with a newsletter now or what I started doing with my newsletter was I just wanted to consolidate interesting things that I was learning about. Um, and he highlights to a, a need in this time for more people to create than consume, which is, I was blown away by because that is still the case today. There are so many eyeballs that spend time scrolling on social media and not many people producing content. So there's always just going to be more of a need for creating content. And Franklin was pretty much saying like nobody else is creating anything. There's an easy market here for me to succeed. So Franklin had a policy at his press that excluded all libeling and personal abuse from anything that he printed. He would print it for the writer. So if a writer came to him and is like, hey, can you print this? And it included slander of somebody. He would print it for them, but he would not distribute it under anything associated with his paper. And he reflects, and again, this is part two, so he's writing this in the 1780s, and he reflects that this has become so disgraceful in America at the time that he's writing this. And you have to think it's pretty bad for Franklin to mention this, and it is not going to change in the next 250 years. There is only going to be more slander, disgrace in papers, and that's how the media runs. And Benjamin Franklin hated it. He goes on in his autobiography here to make a point to caution young printers to not pollute their presses and disgrace the profession with slander. He was adamant about this. He mentions the printing of local duel battles as scandalous and like sinful. Which that's, I, I mean, I guess if you relate that today, that's like the news reporting just crimes because duels were seen as commonplace and um, valiant. But it's funny to think that papers were just printing. Like, hey, John Smith just dueled Andy Murray. And here's the result. Like the sports section. Um, crazy. What a time. 
And so Franklin then jumps forward after 10 years since his last trip to Boston. Franklin mentions that he uh, returns because his brother is in poor health. And he's surprised that whenever he gets there, that his brother doesn't mention any of their previous grievances. And his brother even wants him to take in his 10-year-old son, uh, seeing as he's in poor health and looking like he's not going to come out on the other side, which Franklin writes he was very surprised by. Um, And it's just a good story of relationship, reconciliation at the end of life, and always makes you question, why do we hold grudges so bitterly for so long? Too often we hear about this today even. And there's very few relationships that I am, like, I don't even know what would have to happen. Something drastic for me to hold a grudge until my deathbed on something. It's just not worth it. You see it time and time again. Um, Yeah, it might be hard to be on the other side and be the forgiving one. But um, this is just another story. And Franklin goes, he expands on this a little bit of a little bit of guilt of him not being proactive in his family in the last decade. So then the next point, this kind of sparks him onto a family part of this chapter. And he gets on the topic of children. And in 1736, he mentioned that he being Benjamin Franklin, he lost a son to smallpox And he says this quote, I regret bitterly that I did not inoculate him. This I mentioned for the sake of parents who omit that operation. End quote. Watch this be the most controversial statement that I make in this podcast. Um, But it kind of blows my mind today when parents won't immunize their children. Like, yes, it seems kind of twisted and backwards and cruel whenever you I'm sure whenever it's your own child, it's different. But I read a story in the news the other day that there was a measles outbreak at an Ohio daycare, all attributed to unvaccinated children. We eradicated measles in the year 2000. Going back to what I said earlier about diseases, like it's never going to stop. Diseases throughout human history has wiped out people maybe second to war as the most thing. Maybe, probably more actually. I don't know. Now I'm just going off the cuff here, but this is Franklin that saying, yeah, I was on the fence, but as soon as I lost a child to a preventable disease, um, I was pretty regretful. So I don't know. There's pros and cons. I don't really want to go into this any further, but I feel like if in our uh, vaccination scandalous world that we've been in the past couple of years, it's going to keep on being a hot topic of it's not going to end of vaccinations and is it right or wrong. So interesting quote here by Benjamin Franklin on the topic. The next chapter 
It's chapter 11, and it is interest in public affairs. So mentioned in chapter 10 how Franklin had started writing his almanacs and how profitable it was for him. So he's going to start developing wealth over the next couple years pretty quickly, which will kind of launch him into public life. But he he eases into it. It's not like he's um, projected up the ranks. So Franklin first got into public life or started to get into city affairs whenever he was irritated with the behavior of the quote city watch. He thought it was not equitable that everyone was taxed the same to support this city watch and thought it should be based on property value. So he's pretty much saying wherever the city watch hangs out is who should pay taxes to fund the city watch so the people that are living on the outskirts of philadelphia and again you've got to strip your mindset of a city down to its bare bones here there's only a couple streets that people live on so he thought um you know the people that own farms on the outskirts technically still in the city lines they shouldn't be taxing or paying any tax for a city watch And this idea turns into the police department. Yes, Benjamin Franklin had the idea for the first federally funded security system known as the police department now. He doesn't stop there. So Franklin set out to establish a system of volunteers to aid in in the extinguishment of constant fires that plagued cities in those days. Yep, he also created the concept for the first fire department. I was kind of blown away that these things didn't already exist. And looking back, yeah, they seem like no-brainers. But I guess towns just went through constant fires where people would panic and you would just rally help and try to support and throw water on it and then you were like oh man this is so unfortunate hope this never happens to us this is pretty much what franklin here is thinking with the police department and the fire department is like hey these cities are growing in number what is what is everybody doing okay if there's people looking for work we can outsource people to public work and these, this is how governments grow. Our government today is massive. There are so many people that work in the United States government. You could argue that it's gotten too big. But these were necessary solutions to start building our forward-thinking cities. So Franklin literally imagined two of the most fundamental building blocks to a town today. So moving on, Franklin mentions a, a new reverend that moves to Philadelphia, and his name is Reverend Whitefield, and he, start, and he comes over and starts to preach in 1739. Franklin says this reverend was foundational to the Methodist movement, which is another denomination of Christianity. And a large number of the Presbyterians were not a fan of this. 
so they forced this Reverend Whitefield uh, to preach from fields on the outskirts of town, and he drew large crowds. Some argue that this kind of forms the basis of what Methodists believe today, and they're heavy on the doctrine of evangelism, and Presbyterians kind of are more uh, scripture-based. So just an interesting that multiple denominations are starting to break off in the colonies. And Franklin's got a good quote here. He says, quote, It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manner of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed all the world were growing religious, so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. End quote. A lot to unpack here with this quote. And I think it's crazy how quick things seem secular to Franklin. But more so, I think we love to think of this time of early America as a big religious golden age, myself included. I've made many references that the colonies and people moving to America, the big reason was for religious freedom. But you also have to think of the number of people that are beginning to move here. So Franklin is shocked by how much stir and religious flourishing that one preacher can provide. And the same is still absolutely true today. Uh, The most notable being Billy Graham in the 20th century and the impact that he had on uh, culture and a Christianity revival. But yeah, just a very interesting quote that a whole town was ignited by one reverend coming over and being willing to preach the gospel. And it's another example of Franklin kind of as he writes about his late, later years going back towards uh, not centered on deism, but centered on that there is a divine almighty God. So he goes on in this chapter to say a large building in Philadelphia was constructed as a place for anyone of any denomination or religion to come and preach. And this is, and this is based off of the town voting on this as a result of the dust up with the Methodists and Presbyterians. And Franklin goes to say, quote, even if the Mefti of Constantinople were to send a missionary to preach Mohammedism to us, he would find a pulpit at his service, end quote. This is radical, absolutely radical, unheard of ever in the world. Still today, this is criminal behavior in a lot of countries. Like, I can't emphasize how radical of thinking it was that the colonies dedicated an entire structure. And, I mean, Franklin said it was a large building. And the whole purpose of it was for any religion to assemble and have a meeting or a worship service. 
Like this is one of the most progressive policies probably ever put into place at the world at this time. I mean, this is again, the beginning of our nation based on the freedom of religion. So going on, um, Benjamin Franklin mentions that he begins to come into money, as I mentioned at the start of this chapter. And he also gives a word of caution for anyone entering into business partnerships together as he was still kind of working through the guy who he started his printing press with. He was still kind of working through some of the legalities of separating that, which was a headache for him. But that wraps up this chapter kind of on the start of his public life. I mean, police department, fire department, and was in on getting a religious structure building for religions to meet in Philadelphia. So pretty good little stretch there for him. So chapter seven, defense of the province. So now we're moving more towards a little conflict here in the colonies. So defense and education was next on Franklin's mind in 1743. So again, he's kind of now involved in public life a little bit. And Franklin published a proposal stating the colony's defenseless situation. It drew a lot of interest because a lot of people were reading what Franklin was publishing at this point. And it drew enough interest to where Benjamin Franklin actually held a town hall meeting about it. And 1,200 people showed up to the meeting and everybody signed up for voluntary defense after hearing Franklin's first proposal of what it would look like. Eventually, that number is going to grow to over 10,000. And it's, again, take this with a grain of salt, but Benjamin Franklin is saying this is largely due to his proposal, just simply rallying enthusiasm to say, hey, if we were to get get attacked by the French or the Indians, what are we going to do? So it had to go to a vote in the Pennsylvania Assembly to find or to fund the defense operation. And Franklin, this was his first time having to now rally votes for something, which will, spoiler alert, be useful later. But it was tricky because of the 30 members of the Pennsylvania Assembly, 22 of them were Quakers. And Quakers are a deeply religious community. So they aren't going to be just throwing money around to any cause. But one loophole that Benjamin Franklin knew about with the Quakers was they would try to not offend their people if they appropriated money to the British government by directing it for, quote, for the king's use, meaning, okay, we're not going to say that we're directly, you know, raising money or appropriating taxes for the buildup of defenses. But if we just say, hey, we're going to direct this for the king's use and he does it, so be it. 
they did the Quakers did the same thing by appropriating funds for bread, flour, wheat, or other grain. And that other grain is important because the other grain that was categorized under the rug was gunpowder. So it's these little intricacies that have never not been alive in government where people are always trying to find loopholes in language and wording, and it's no different here. And he also mentions, as you can imagine, this is the beginning of Quakers phasing out of public life from assemblies where eventually they will just form their own communities. So next, at the end of this chapter, this chapter is pretty, uh, this, this one was pretty lengthy. So tried to summarize it as best as possible. But at the end of the chapter, he goes back to mention that he invented the open stove in 1742 so he just casually goes back to this after writing about a bunch of um, public life stuff which is known as the franklin stove so just a casual mention again the franklin stove is still found in homes today the governor was so pleased with the construction that he offered benjamin franklin a patent for free and franklin turned it down And Franklin says this quote, As we enjoy great advantages from the inventions of others, we should be glad of an opportunity to serve others by an invention of ours. And this we should do freely and generously. End quote. In our current capitalistic landscape in America, this is seen as unheard of. And this would launch, like Benjamin Franklin never one time patented any of his inventions and he had a lot of them it kind of reminds me his idea here of open source software today and how people just want to create good software for others to use and help them out in any sort of day-to-day life and that's just simply all franklin wanted again going back like he had just as much use for his inventions as others So that was enough for him. But the story goes on and a man in Europe ends up patenting the Franklin stove and making a bunch of money off of it. Franklin says on this quote, This is not the only instance of patents take. Out of my inventions by others, though not always with the same success, which I never contested, as having no desire of profiting my patents myself, and hating disputes, end quote. Think of the legal minds our country has produced. Every president or person of power is from Ivy League law. You go down the line and you look at government officials, senators, and it's a lot from the same handful of schools call it the ivy league schools nobody had like whenever you come from a litigious mindset like this nobody develops a mindset of a giver in positions of power benjamin franklin a poor puritan boy 
has the exact opposite mindset. And it's the mindset that our country was built off of, was just giving and making sure everybody had equal opportunity. And yes, it wasn't perfect, and it's still not perfect today, but it's pretty close to being the best government tried. And Franklin ends the chapter talking about his Franklin stove by simply saying, quote, this is a great saving of wood for me, end quote. That's all. He just was trying to save wood. So he created a stove that would save him from burning wood. So chapter 13, public services and duties. And this time period is 1749 to 1753. So kind of getting down to the final years of his autobiography. And first he turns from his defense establishment ideas to his establishing education ideas. So Franklin was elected as trustee for a new academy. And he lobbies the fellow trustees to use the building that was built for the religious assembly that we mentioned in the last chapter. Because the building had accumulated some debt. Um, Again, not saying there was... It was... a great concept not saying that there was much use for it because it had started to accumulate debt and wasn't getting as much use so franklin started to get good at lobbying for what he wanted although he mentioned a lot that he hated disputes which might have made him good at this because he avoided disputes and he did exchanges all together so he got the trustees to get the land, get the building, and this established the University of Philadelphia, which was later changed to the University of Pennsylvania. And I think that this is ironic that a non-Ivy League man established one of the most prominent schools for public officials throughout our country's history. And seeing as though our country is perpetually run by Ivy League graduates, it's a good reminder to remember your roots. Your roots are built in, like I'm addressing all the Ivy League graduates that are going to listen to this, but your roots are built upon humble beginnings. So remember that. After this, he mentions that he draws back from his private business works a lot as he's being promoted up in public life. So the governor raises him from clerk, and again, this is in a four-year period, from clerk to commissioner of the peace to common council to alderman, and finally, the citizens choose him as Burgess to represent them in assembly. Franklin mentions he had great advantage to this because of his, his paper and his press business. So another example of what are you doing? Are you active in your community? How are you making a name for yourself? What are you contributing to a city? Because it'll give back to you. And he mentions in this time as the main issue was dealing with Indians, as it was so often in the 18th century and beyond. So next in 1751, Benjamin Franklin mentions a doctor friend of his having the idea for a hospital. And I'm glad 
that Franklin laments that he did not come up with this idea because it's good to know that he didn't invent all of modern society. But interesting that the initial proposal from the doctor and so Benjamin Franklin then he helped on it too though. It included inhabitants of all the province and strangers. So this is being that the initial proposal said all inhabitants of the province can come to this concept of a hospital and receive health treatment and strangers. This made it to where there was small success in rallying support for the first concept of a hospital because people in town thought that they should have to pay for foreigners medical attention. Franklin then devises a plan that says if I raise 2,000 pounds for this and convince people that it is worth it, then the assembly should match that. And the assembly then is like, well, we don't want to appear less charitable than the people who would raise money for this. So they agreed to it. And this was one of Franklin's first brilliant stunts. And it's still a political stunt used today that if a cause is charitable, politicians better get behind it because it's going to be a bad look if they're like, you know what? I don't think we're going to really give more money to St. Jude this year. It's kind of a bad look. So Benjamin Franklin, he gets the amounts and contributions. He raises the money. And so the res- the resolution goes through to build a hospital. Franklin says, quote, I do not remember any of my political maneuvers, the success of which gave me at the time more pleasure or within, after thinking of it, I more easily excuse myself for having made some use of cunning. End quote. He says that this was his most impressive political maneuver. So there's, again, keep on saying it, but there's going to be a lot in the revolution and informing our country. And he's looking back and thinking like, man, I really killed that one. Got us a hospital. So next in the public life of Benjamin Franklin, he lobbies to get the streets of Philadelphia paved with stone and brick. So at this time, the streets were still just dust and dirt. And, you know, if it would rain, it would just be a mud pit. You couldn't take your horse and buggy through it. And he got the idea after watching a poor man clean the entrance of a street outside of a person's home. And he saw that and thought, wow, everybody would want this. Why don't we just completely change our road system? So he would try to appeal this to businesses uh, by saying, hey, it's really hard to get people in town and come to your store whenever it rains. And newsflash, it rains weekly. So you're losing business uh, based off of the weather. What if we bypass that? Again, another brilliant thing to go public life combining with private life here to go to businesses and lobby them and say, you guys are losing a lot of money here. 
why don't we get this resolution through to change our streets? And they're like, absolutely, we're in. Where do we give you money? So another brilliant tactic here by Franklin. So Benjamin Franklin is aware to mention too that the keeping of streets clean might not be interesting or of great importance, but he has this long quote here that I think is really good. And he says, quote, Human felicity is produced not so much by great pieces of good fortune that seldom happen as by little advantages that occur every day. Thus, if you teach a poor young man to shave himself and keep his razor in order, you may contribute more to the happiness of his life than in giving him a thousand guineas. The money may be soon spent, the regret only remaining of having foolishly consumed it. But in the other case, he escapes the frequent vexation of waiting for barbers and of their sometimes dirty fingers, offensive breaths, and dull razors, he shaves when most convenient to him, and enjoys daily the pleasure of it being done with a good instrument. With these sentiments, I have hazarded the few preceding pages, hoping they may afford hints which some time or other may be useful to a city I love, having lived many years in it very happily, and perhaps to some of our towns in America. End quote. So the point of that quote is saying little things that help your day, little creations and inventions that give you an advantage are massive. So by giving a man a good clean razor, it's going to be more useful to him than giving him a thousand guineas that he's going to waste. But he now has this great razor that he escapes the burden of going to a barber getting shaved risking i guess at this time it was a big risk to get an infection or have a dull razor or whatnot so he wants to build up the importance of his passing of getting um stone and brick streets which i would argue yes franklin you were right those were pretty important So lastly, in this chapter, uh, in 1753, Franklin is appointed postmaster general of the colonies. So now he's starting to step into more federal roles in the colonies. Chapter 14 is titled Albany Plan of Union. And this is going to be the first concept of establishing a union in the colonies. So he opens with this quote. In 1754, war with France being again apprehended, a congress of commissioners from the different colonies was, by an order of the Lords of Trade, to be assembled at Albany, there to confer with the chiefs of the six nations concerning the means of defending both their country and ours. Governor Hamilton, having received this order, acquainted the House with it, requesting they would furnish proper presents for the Indians to be given on this occasion and naming the speaker, Mr. Norris, and myself to join Mr. Thomas Penn and Mr. Secretary Peters as commissioners to act for Pennsylvania. The House approved the nomination and provided the goods for the present, and though they did not much like treating out of the provinces. End quote. First off, it's interesting that Franklin referred to, defer- to defending this country as ours and the Indians. Usually whenever people write about this time period, it's about 
the settlers coming in and this is our country, but he specifically states that this is also the Indians country. So that's pretty, I think forward thinking on his part. And so Franklin just saw this as an opportunity as they were kind of coming together as war with France was becoming more inevitable to draw up the, up, the first plan for a union of all colonies under one government and the necessary means for it to to go back to Britain and say, Hey, why are you guys doing this? Uh, What's for defense? So the other commissioners from colonies had done the same, but because Franklin was so well liked, his draft was chosen to be the initial draft of, forming a union uh, minus a few amendments made by other colonies. So basically what this consisted of was there would be a president appointed by the British crown and then a grand council to be appointed by the people of the colonies. And imagine if England would have said yes to this, how different our world would be today. Because the colonies voted yes, but the Board of Trade of England was not for this and shot the plan down as they saw it as being too democratic. Keep in mind, this is pretty much like the plan was pretty much saying, hey, king or queen of England, who do you want to rule in the colonies? And then we'll just kind of pick our own parliament style council over here. And pretty much be Little England. And the Board of Trade of England was like, you know what? This is just way too radical. You guys are out of control. Crazy. I mean, it's mind-blowing to think that nobody... And it, they always make it seem like there was like really no discussion. Like I'd love to hear the other side of what the discussions were in England whenever this was proposed. So Franklin ends the chapter with this quote. Those who govern having much business on their hands do not generally like to take the trouble of considering and carrying into execution new projects. The best public measures are therefore seldom adopted from previous wisdom, but forced by the occasion. End quote. Wonderful quote to end the chapter. Pretty much saying, like, Britain wasn't worried in this time about much of anything like they were building an empire and this quote is saying that whenever you're involved in your own like take a large business for example you oftentimes think man how did how did this large business not see a new developing trend and well it's because they have the trouble of carrying into existence their current projects that take up a lot of time and manpower and capital and so um, you know policies are often in governments forced by the occasion you think of COVID how many policies um, have been implemented since March of 2020 and all those forced by the occasion okay so moving on chapter 15 not much in this one. It's called Quarrels with the Proprietary Governors. 
So basically all that happened in this one was new governor of New York name was Mr. Morris. That's what Franklin said. And Franklin goes on this long description of him as being a man that loves disputes and how he still hates disputes and that he wouldn't be a very successful governor. And he was kind of right. But again, going back to this practice, I need to implement it a little bit more. I can sometimes be an opinionated person. You don't start a podcast unless you have opinions. Um, So it's give and take. It's both, I think, are necessary to a well-balanced speaking life. Um, And then battles with the French begin to surface in the French-Indian Wars. So, again, we're kind of moving quicker towards the end of the autobiography here. Chapter 16 is titled Braddock's Expedition. So Franklin goes to meet with the British General Braddock, who was pretty popular for the French-Indian Wars. So he had come over with his troops to defend against the French. And resources were in poor shape, so Franklin promised to procure some of Pennsylvania, which Braddock approved. So Franklin pens letters in his papers pleading people of Pennsylvania for horses, wagons, rations, any sort of supplies that they can help give for the upcoming battles. And the rhetoric in these letters is very pro-British. Franklin is describing the crown as being kind of home and we have to defend this for Britain. And I think it's important to keep in mind that Franklin was never really opposed to Britain. He never really developed the brouhaha feeling of the revolution like guys like George Washington did because a lot of time in the revolution Franklin was an ambassador to Britain and France for the U.S. and spent time in Europe. So it's important to note that like down the line whenever the revolution starts happening Benjamin Franklin was such a big domino that as soon as he was for it and started signing the declaration and the constitu- like everybody was like okay this is this is happening um so back to it general braddock really liked benjamin franklin and franklin disagreed with general braddock's plan to march on fort ducans and this is interesting that franklin mentions this because George Washington was in this battle and also dissented of the battle plan. And I don't want this to be a hindsight 2020 moment for Franklin here, but I think he is being honest here because it is widely documented in a lot of George Washington's history that he was also against this. And it was seen as kind of a very risky play, uh, this battle was and it's the first example this battle at fort Duquesne's of the british not knowing the landscape and how to battle in wooded uh mountain like the appalachian mountains that is the 
terrain is not friendly. The British soldiers and troops were used to open field combat. And so they lost this battle in embarrassing fashion. And Britain would not learn their lesson as they would carry a lot of this throughout their battle tactics in the Revolutionary War. So goes on to note Franklin that the issue of financing these war efforts were very troublesome and Franklin ended up actually fronting some of, of his own money to help finance the defense and many of the bonds issued cannot be honored to the people of the colonies. So chapter 17 uh, is titled Franklin's Defense of the Frontier. So the, quote, Western Front was taken by the enemy, which is funny to think about. Like, we're talking about Western Pennsylvania, have no clue that this country is going to expand over to California, and they keep talking about, like, the West. They're like, oh, the West is being taken. So it's just kind of funny to think about that. But Franklin actually got commissioned to uh, command troops, and he was charged with defending the Western Front with uh, 560 men under his command. And he spends a lot of this chapter just talking about how ill-equipped he was to be a commander of troops and lead in a military expedition. But when push comes to shove, oftentimes we're not ready for many callings. And you just kind of do the best you can. I've seen this happen in my own life on, you know, different work projects or different things that you kind of get called into and you're like, "Ah, I don't really have any experience with this. And they're like, I know, but I think you're smart and I think that you can figure it out. So give it your best chance and we'll see what happens. And that's a lot of what um, work in life is, is people that believe in you and People believed in Franklin, so why not put him as commander of an army? So he helped in his time as a as a general here. He helped establish three forts, um, which was, I guess, a big deal for defense here. And then he was quickly called back to assembly meetings. So um, his time, his wartime was short. And then chapter 18 titled scientific experiments so he begins by saying he goes further in public affairs but he should go back and mention his rise and progress of philosophical reputation so (laughs) he loves to always give an aside to his moral achievement in life and It's more important to him than anything that he did professionally or in public life. And he goes on another long section here talking about his strive for moral achievement that um, seems kind of redundant at this point. And then he gets into some scientific experiments. So 1746, um, he saw where electric experiments in in Boston while he was there, and he brought some of them back to Philadelphia. 
So he published his theories about electricity. And Franklin said that he rarely defended his theories, going back to his hate of disputes. So he would just put out his theories and then move on. If people, because a, a big deal in, in this day was to meet in the town square and debate theories. And seeing as he was a printer and he had his own paper, as soon as he published them, people would be um, very eager to try and argue with him on him. And he would just to continue to the next thing that he would publish. So in this paper, he describes the harnessing of electricity in Paris. And he says that he has done this as well with a kite in Philadelphia. So this is bursts the image of Benjamin Franklin running around Philadelphia on a stormy night with a kite. Um, it's very technical here. Um, and I'm not the greatest at scientific dissection of research. So I think I'll leave this part out. So then we get to the final chapter of Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, chapter 19, and it's titled agent of Pennsylvania in London. So the new governor, uh, tries to butter up Benjamin Franklin here and try to like get him in his pocket. But Franklin writes that he gave no room to be partial in public life and didn't want to appear that way. Uh, it was a big deal for him because he also was a publisher and a printer. Um, so then he goes on to note that he makes his, his way to New York to sell to England it kind of gets to be a little spotty writing because this is the last chapter and he never finished his autobiography. So kind of written in haste, but he keeps on writing about the amount of personal financing that he had put up for um, the colony's defense. And he was bitter about that. And Braddock general Braddock died and the new general didn't really like Benjamin Franklin and didn't see him get paid and who knows, maybe this starts kind of the sour taste that Franklin gets for Britain. So you never know what enemy you're making here is kind of the lesson. So Franklin ended up being a pretty powerful one for Britain to not have on their side. So Franklin lands in London in July 27th of 1757. And this is kind of the last of his biography is landing in London. And I think it's funny that how he talked about early on in his life, one of his initial passions was sailing. And he kind of ends his biography with this grand description of his journey to London and the voyage on sea. And with that, that concludes the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. So the publication of the autobiography that I have will it has a lot of the writings referenced in the autobiography at the end as kind of an appendix section so i'm not going to go too far in depth into those but there are a few that i wanted to highlight and a few notes here so uh, you thought we were done but let's keep this party rolling 
So the first one is called The Way to Wealth, and this one's probably the most famous. So Franklin writes this as part of his Poor Richard's Almanac, this one signed by Richard Saunders. And The Way to Wealth is a story about how to build wealth in times of uncertainty. And I think this is awesome to read for the current financial times that we face right now in America. And so the story is from the first person. So it's written, I, me, we, etc. by Richard Saunders, which is Benjamin Franklin. And Richard stops at an auction in town where people were uh, gathered around waiting for the auction to start. And they were moaning about the times and saying, ah, everything is so hard. And one man called out to Father Abraham, who was in the crowd, and said, What do you think of the times? Will not these heavy taxes quite ruin the country? How shall we be ever able to pay them? What would you advise us to do? And this figure, Father Abraham, acknowledges the need to speak. So he says this long diatribe, which is the rest of the uh, writing here. So Father Abraham starts by, quote, The taxes are indeed heavy, and if those laid on by the giver were the only ones we had to pay, we might more easily discharge them, but we have many others. We are taxed twice as much for our idleness, three times as much by our pride, and four times as much by our folly. And from these taxes, the commissioner cannot ease or give us an abatement. However, let us hear good advice. God helps them that help themselves. So what he is saying is that we additionally tax our lives beyond anything of what the government could tax on us by twice as much for our idleness, uh, which he's just kind of our inability to, to move and act on things, three times as much by our pride. Going back to the quote that Franklin talked about, his pride was one of the greatest deterrents of his moral achievement. And four times as much by our folly. So you're taxed by just your um, pleasure-seeking activities. So then Father Abraham continues. Sloth, or what he's saying is just being lazy, consumes faster than labor wears. But dost thou love life? Then do not squander time. For that is the stuff life is made of. If time be of all things the most precious, wasting time must be the greatest prodigality. Or that word means not wise. Um, And then he goes on to talk about just habits of going early to bed and early to rise, which is one of the greatest things that I've ever implemented in my life. I used to go to bed at 1 a.m. and wake up at 11. Um, Obviously, that was more so high school, college, but even distilling that practice in me before I got into the workplace of um, early to bed, early to rise was integral to where I am now. So oftentimes I ask people, you know, what's your morning routine? What does that look like? What are you taking advantage of in the morning that you are sacrificing? And so back to... Father Abraham here now goes back to the root question that the townspeople asked, which was, so what signifies 
wishing and hoping for better times. We may not make these times better if we bestir uh, or arouse emotion or anger ourselves. So basically not going to make anything better by sitting around and being angry and just yelling and arguing. Father Abraham continues, He that hath a trade hath an estate, and he that hath a calling hath an office of profit and honor. So in modern English here, he that has a job has a house. He that has a professional purpose has money and honor from that job. So it's not really too much of a secret there of what he's talking about. Father Abraham continues, diligence is the mother of good luck, and God gives all things to industry. Then plow deep, while sluggards sleep, you shall have corn to sell and to keep. That is probably top five Benjamin Franklin quotes of mine is, diligence is the mother to good luck. If you practice diligence and put time into something, luck is just a byproduct of it. I firmly believe that. So basically, things aren't always happenstance. You see things that work out for some people and you're like, ah, man, they're just always so lucky. But you don't see the work that they put in behind the scenes. So next... He goes on to the topic of expenses and cutting frugality. And he says, quote, Away then with your expensive follies, and you will not then have so much cause to complain of hard times, heavy taxes, and chargeable families. We're in hard times, and I believe my generation doesn't really understand what that entails at the moment just because things have always been so up like i the 2008 financial crisis i was in the fifth grade so you can remember stuff that i remember my family kind of sacrificed at the times and kind of started to cut it back on spending but wasn't really you know my parents did an incredible job of a being prepared for it but not really passing it on to the kids and they probably bared the brunt of that. So now that we're kind of in our first recessionary environment, it's it's pretty it's pretty tough to change your mindset. And so there's sacrifices that have to be made. But the last line here that Franklin says, I love that And you will not have so much cause to complain of hard times, heavy taxes, and chargeable families. Families is something that my generation has sacrificed and they've put off. And there's a big reason is because I want to say is because of how expensive it is to raise kids. But it's specifically stating like we should, we should chart or we should save for this and keep this in mind and I don't ever want to know what my parents had to pay in total to raise me but my grandfather had this quote that he told my dad that he said kids will never cost you a dime and his funny aside there was well until they got to college which is definitely true but even if it's all out of love the money still has to come from somewhere so um 
again, in this essay, Franklin talks a lot about, you know, cutting costs and cutting the expenses and unnecessary uh, places where you spend money because there's so much that life has to offer that you're going to not want to miss out because you were maybe not wise early on in your life. Um, so another quote by Father Abraham, a small leak will sink a great ship. Be wary of little expenses. So I think just overall budgeting is big here. Just knowing where every dollar goes, explore your expense habits and see where you can cut things out. Um, because you know, small, the small little $5, $10, $15, $20 Venmo's add up pretty quickly. So Abraham goes on. It is easier to suppress the first desire than all that follow it. This is an awesome anecdote or sorry, quote here to think about. And my first thought goes to food. Uh, I love food. I love all types of food. And it's, it's funny how whenever you get that first bite of food, you're like, oh man, I want everything else. And so it's easier to suppress the first desire than all that follow it. Again, he's not talking about food here, but I think that it's just a good example of spending. Like I often live by the rule that if my life has been perfectly fine without knowing what buying that product is like, then I don't spend the money there. So unless I can see where a 100% beneficial or way that this new product will benefit me, then I'm probably not going to buy it. Like I went to bed last night perfectly fine knowing that I didn't have that. I'll go to bed tonight perfectly fine knowing I don't have that. I'm not going to buy it. Finally, kind of wrapping up the letter here, Father Abraham goes on to say, uh, there's a divine blessing from heaven that is needed. So he's saying you can do everything right and it can all still be taken from you. So personal conduct is just as important and helping those less than fortunate is vital to a way to wealth. And I love this. I call this the likability, the likable standard. So you can be the most hardworking, wealthy individual, but something catastrophic can happen. Then you have to ask who is around me. And so in times of need, uh, oftentimes we turn to community and those that can support us. So again, you can do everything right financially you can have the best job, save up, do everything by the book, but something drastic can happen to you. And so then um, I love this final point of Father Abraham saying, like, who is around you? What have you done to give to others that in turn will give back to you? So at the end of Father Abraham's long monologue here, after he's finished, the auction begins. So it's back to um, the author here, which is Richard Saunders, is at the auction. And so the auction begins, and he says all of Father Abraham's teachings go out the window, and everyone starts bidding, quote, ferociously on goods. 
and poor Richard acknowledged that Father Abraham had fully read his almanacs. So now Richard is doing this writing style of saying these are all points of emphasis that Benjamin Franklin had written on. And so he was trying to portray like principles that he had and what it would look like to be broadcasted in practice. And so then Richard says, although he had originally been at the auction to buy a new coat, he went away resolved to wear his old one a bit longer. Um, so that kind of ends the way to wealth, which is a great read. I really encourage you if you're, um, especially, especially right now in our, um, financial conditions in America, it's just a good reminder of being smart financially, remembering to give, remembering to spend wisely and remembering how it is that building building a life 10 20 50 years down the line how it how it looks today so next in the other writings is the silence do good letters and these letters were written again in kind of the 1720s that franklin was writing to publish in his brother's paper that his brother wouldn't let him publish his own writing so he had to write under the pseudonym of silence do good and drop these letters off at midnight at the press. And these are kind of cool to read. I'm only going to read one and the quotes in there. Um, I think there's 18 and kind of took a, a decent thought from each of them, but I think it would be a little redundant as we've studied a lot of what Franklin puts into practice. A lot of the same themes appear in these letters, but I'm going to specifically talk about letter number eight, which was written July 8th, 1722. And this whole letter highlights themes and stuff that's going to enter into the fabric of our country in the United States Constitution. And this was written in 1722, long before we were to have a nation. So it's crazy how forward thinking that some of these thoughts were, but it's also not crazy when you think about how our country was built off of just previous other practices that governments had tried and kind of enhancing them. So these ideas weren't new. Like we didn't just form America and the constitution out of thin air. The writers were taking stuff from a lot from Rome, a lot from Britain, a lot from numerous other democracy type practices that had minorly been put in place and just tweaking them and making them more radical. So silence introduces this whole letter with an excerpt from the London journal. And so below are some highlights quotes without freedom of thought, there can be no such thing as wisdom. And no such thing as public liberty without freedom of speech, which is the right of every man. As far as by it, he does not hurt or control the right of another. And this is the only check it ought to suffer and the only bound it ought to know. 
So already freedom of liberty or freedom of speech, the right of every man to be able to do as he pleases. Um, so right off the back, like freedom of thought, the government, if, if the government controls what you think about and can say, then that's immediately not a democratic government. So then it goes on, this sacred privilege is so essential to free governments that the security of property and the freedom of speech always go together. And in those wretched countries where a man cannot call his tongue his own, he can scarce call anything else his own. Whoever would overthrow the liberty of a nation must begin by subduing the freedness of speech, a thing terrible to public traitors. So... That's a big quote at the end by saying, if you were to overthrow the liberty of a nation, you begin by suppressing freedom of speech. We see this a lot right now with the battle of Twitter. I know that Elon Musk has taken over Twitter, and that's been the common theme that he's been saying is bringing back freedom of speech. So the way this looks in the world of platforms now and how freedom of speech is often online, the blurred lines are uncharted waters for us at the moment so it'll be really interesting to see how we navigate that in the next decade because the past decade kind of got out of control the next quote is freedom of speech is ever the symptom as well as the effect of a good government in old rome so referencing rome here all is left to the judgment and pleasure of the people who examined the public proceedings with such discretion and censored those who administered them with such equity and mildness that in the space of 300 years, not five public ministers suffered unjustly. Indeed, whenever the commons produced to violence, the great ones had been the aggressors. He goes on, guilt only dreads liberty of speech, which drags it out of its lurking holes and exposes its deformity and hoard to daylight. That quote is very um, colorful, that guilt only dreads liberty of speech. That's one of the best lines in this letter, because if you're guilty, you're going to suppress others from saying what they ought to because you're trying to hide something. Whenever everything is all out in the open and free, the guilty kind of vote for more suppression and laws because they want their own guilt to be justified. So if you have nothing to hide, you typically don't mind when others can kind of do as they please. So that's why I think a lot of the cancel culture that has been prevalent online is there because they don't want their own dirty laundry to be aired out. You know, if we make it to where we suppress everybody else, then they don't ever have to kind of take their turn in airing out their dirty laundry. But um, another quote goes on, uh, last one of this letter. But things afterwards took another turn. Rome, with loss of its liberty, lost also its freedom of speech. So this whole letter is dedicated to the ideals of freedom of speech. And that's what our country is based off of. 
and it's worked so far, but it's changing rapidly. So it's important to kind of keep in mind. All right. The last other writing that we're going to talk about is called A Modern Inquiry into the Nature and Necessity of a Paper Currency. So a huge topic here in the 18th century in the colonies was, are we going to keep on using the British pound or are we ever going to have our own currency over here? Again, we touched on earlier in the podcast that what it would look like to have the the colony's own currency was not positive because of the value of the currency would be um, a lot lower than the British pound. So Franklin starts off this essay with how economic principles have stayed in effect for so long throughout human history. And so first he talks about a great want of money in any trading country occasions interest to be at a very high rate. So this is the concept of debt. So any country that deals a lot in trading and in goods, so pretty much any country that has high gross domestic product, um, interest rates are going to be of interest. No pun intended. But because of the concept of debt, so you can buy goods and not have to pay for them immediately, you can go into debt. So whenever this happens, the value of land goes down because you can make more money by lending your money than investing it. So in trading countries where debt is taken on by its consumers and interest rates are then of, I'm not going to say interest here, interest rates are then of a use to people, they're not going to invest their money in land. So that's true in the economy right now. So with rates going up, people are going to buy less land and they're instead going to invest in in securities and bonds that provide a rate of return with higher interest. So you would rather lend your money than invest it because it's going to have a higher rate of return. So thus people aren't buying stocks and buying land. They are choosing to save. And if they were to give out their money, lend it at a higher, higher interest rate. However, we get into the principle of this essay was, should we print our own currency? Because if the money supply is higher, then interest rates are lower. So as you print more money, interest rates will go down because there's more money in circulation. So thus, you can trade or just do business at a lower price and be more competitive. So the more money supply that's out there, the more money that people have to spend. Um, Franklin says that you can trade at a lower price, which is yes and no. Um, you know, we've kind of seen in the past couple of years with as the Federal Reserve has printed more money, there's been more money in circulation, so goods are then at a higher price. So neither here nor there. So next, more money equals a greater demand for luxury goods. So 
as soon as you print more money into society, then people will start buying more stuff. Franklin then goes on to lay out uh, the different people who would be for a greater supply of domestic currency and those who would be against it. And he argues that people will, will, will people will take a side for whatever side influences them personally, which is obviously true. Um, you know, you're going to vote for whoever in, impacts you the most personally. You're going to probably side with the most issues that gives you the greatest advantage. That's not really new. And so he kind of lays out both sides of should we print our currency or should we not? Pretty much the people who would be in favor for printing it are going to be the lower class people and the people who would not be in favor of printing it would be the higher class people who um, have a lot of British pounds and don't want their money to be diluted by a new currency. So he goes on to um, talk about money as a median of exchange, which goes back to the intro of this podcast. And I think that it's a good place to end too, because the man is on the $100 bill. So commodities fluctuate in price based off demand. So commodities being your corn, wheat, oil, and gas, those types of things. So this creates for a need of a steady unit of value because, you know, in those days you could go to a farmer and say, Hey, I'll trade you a bushel of corn for a bushel of wheat or an ear of corn for a bushel of wheat and there needed to be kind of an exchange value. Okay. What's, what's fair here. So this is where money is a social construct that has been around since, um, since human history as saying, okay, let's just create a median of exchange that satisfies the kind of exchange value problems. So he then says this about um, printing our own currency, quote, the riches of a country are to be valued by the quantity of labor its inhabitants are able to purchase, not by the quantity of silver and gold they possess. As those metals have grown very much more plentiful in Europe since the discovery of America, so they have sunk in value exceedingly for, to instance in England, formerly one penny of silver was worth a day's labor, and now it is hardly worth a sixth part of a day's labor. Because not less the sixpence will purchase the labor of a man for a day in any part of the kingdom, which is wholly to be attributed to the much greater plenty of money now in England than formerly. And yet perhaps England is in effect no richer now than at that time, because as much labor might be purchased or work gone done of almost any kind for 100 pounds then will now require or now worth 600 pounds, end quote. So what this quote is saying is upper class people don't have to work. It's the middle and lower class who labor. So the reason why America is the wealth giant today is because it began as a low class country and it had to work. What he's cautioning here is that as soon as the majority of a country's people don't have to work, is whenever the labor leaves. So 
whenever you have wealth and you don't need to invest it or spend it, the labor will suddenly not be there. And we're kind of seeing this in America today where it's it's been alleviated because you can now outsource to um, other countries where there is cheaper labor. So basically, Franklin is saying here the value of a country is valued by the quantity of labor its inhabitants are able to purchase and not the quantity of silver and gold they possess. So a big fear with America here at its current state is there's a lot of silver and gold pent up, but how much labor is leaving? And if that does leave altogether, what are the repercussions of it? Because the money will run out at some point. So I think it's a good idea to keep of where kind of markets and the economic conditions kind of fluctuate that there always needs to be a healthy labor supply. So Ben Franklin kind of concludes this essay by saying, Hey, I think we need to print more money and have our own domestic currency. And here we are today still discussing these same principles of should we print more money? Should we not? Are interest rates going to go up? Um, what does that mean? Should we tax more? It's it's never ending. And it's honestly exhausting to have to keep up with. But Benjamin Franklin would have never gotten on the $100 bill if he wouldn't have had these four thinking ideas and implemented them into the fabric of our nation. So we end where we begin. Mr. Benjamin Franklin, founding father of our country, face of the $100 bill, and who had one of the most fascinating lives of any person in human history. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Dire Notes podcast. May the great shepherd guide your ways. My name is Davis Dyer. Thank you for listening. 